are you gonna edit this for me? <laughs> Constantly letting me down with this editing. I feel like I don't ask a lot, you know. Uh, <laughs> sure, sure. Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaker. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute... Something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, Boy Wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. Podcast episode 146 for September MMXBII. Backroll the Oracle is brought to you by Supergirl Radio, and I don't have a promo for them, but go check them out. I had a delightful conversation with Rebecca and Morgan about Supergirl number 11, in which Backroll appears, and they were just delightful. It was really great. So go check Supergirl Radio out. Backroll the Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out MileHighComics.com. 
Batgirl the Oracle is a proud member of the Batman Universe Family Podcast. Hashtag TBU Family. I'm still trying to get that to trend. <laughs> who knows? I think I'm the only one who uses it. And finally, you can support the Batman Universe and subscribe to the show on Patreon by going to thebatmanuniverse.net. And of course, you're supporting my show and others as well under the little umbrella of the Batman Universe. Well, I uh, we're entering this new age, I guess, of Oracle, where she's about to not be on her own, not be primarily with the Bat family, though that's still true, but she's going to be actually on a team, and it's not the Suicide Squad, so it's been a little while since she's been in a team dynamic. And I think this invitation had come about because this guy, who says that it's rude to invite himself on his shows, but he does it anyways, he uh, said, you know, I'd like to do the JLA Titans. And then something spun out of this that every time uh, a JLA story would come up that, hey, why not be my guest host or my co-host for that? Because there are quite a few where Oracle will be on the Justice League of America. And so, without further ado, this will be my, I guess, semi, uh, you can't be semi-irregular because that's Shags. We'll have to come up with something. But he's the curmudgeon that everybody loves. It's Tom Panarese. Hey, how are you doing? (laughs) Uh, do you think we could get that to trend, the curmudgeon that everyone loves? No. What do you mean, no? I thought that was a pretty <laughs> simple, straightforward answer. I don't think I could be more succinct. See, the thing is that in that whole little thing that you just said, it was basically a curmudgeon answer. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Anywho, so how do you feel bad about inviting yourself on this show? No. Okay. Well, Shag gets to do it. I do. Yeah. Well, so you know, I, I, the people want Shag. You know, the fans demand it. <laughs> and what market research are you citing? I the world. I Same mean, market research that said that Batman and Robin was going to be a oh successful movie. It was a successful movie. Yeah, technically it was a, it was successful, but there was a lot of stuff in the movie. There were a lot of movies in the nineties that are technically successful, but you know. Well, I think so is Dante's Peak. Because that's the best Batman film out there, frankly. Mm. Christopher Schmolen is what I say. Anywho, so I actually (laughs) I'm 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 not the biggest fan of of two out of three of those movies. I, I didn't think were as good as people were were saying they were. So I recently rewatched them and found joy in them. Uh but yeah, I mean, I don't They're know. They're not terrible. I'm just yeah. – I, I don't worship at the altar of Christopher Nolan. Yes. You know, so. I understand. Yeah. Oh, what is your uh, – well, I guess before – maybe we won't do that yet because I was about to ask your history. But we'll get back to the history. I wanted to first apologize to Ian Miller because I've lied to him. And it was an unintentional lie. But he had written in and said, you know, when are you going to get back to Birds of Prey? And I said, oh, I think it'll be in the next couple months. And clearly this is probably the time that I was going to do that. So I'm very sorry. But things just 
you know, I look at my Excel sheet and I come up with an idea and then the actual occurrence is, is different. And for example, you know, you asked about uh, publishing that Excel sheet and I was looking through and just for example, I think it said on my little sheet that Barbara Gordon appeared in number 17, I think it was, or 16 and 17. And so, you know, I'm looking through these issues and Barbara Gordon is near to be found. So, is you this know, in are- Justice League? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Or JLA, sorry. JLA, yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, so sometimes it lies to me, so I have to figure it out before I end up going. So things, you know, the Birds of Prey will happen sometime soon. It won't be next month. I will spoil that next month's episode is going to be on Cataclysm, so you can get excited for that and dig out your old trade or buy a new one if you have it. But we'll get back. I do promise. And I also want to say to Ian Miller, a.k.a. Ian Prime, congrats to you because you are the winner of the original Batgirl the Oracle shirt. Yes, because you subscribe to Patreon at the $25 or more level. And uh, there were uh, a couple other people in the running, but the uh, the lottery picked you out. So I will be sure to be in contact with you. I actually, my artist friend has made an original design. I just need to get it scanned in and send it to a, a company that is not going to flag it for copyright <laughs> issues. So uh, I, I will be in contact with you. So congrats to you. And uh, on a final note, which is actually uh, a bit of a sad note here, my uh, good now, with all kidding aside, Tom and I really do, uh, well, I should say Tom, actually, we really do adore Shag. The irredeemable Shag. Yes, that guy. That sounded actually pretty good. I like to call him Shagalicious. And as listeners of this show or just of the episodes with Shag know, I always like to bring up Remington because he is a beautiful cat. I love black cats in particular. I think they're my favorite uh, colored cat. And I love to hear stories about Remington. And I always pleaded with Shag to bring Remington in so he could be around in the recordings and everything. So I'm very sad to say that Remington recently passed away. And even though I had never met Remington, I actually cared a great deal about him. Like I said, I enjoyed the anecdotes and everything. So it hit me a little bit. And, you know, just as... Remington's like a you know a friend of and family member of Backer the Oracle, so I just wanted to say that uh, my thoughts you know it hits. Pets are like children, really. They're members of the family, and I know that he. I think Remington was about twelve or fourteen. So, you know, you're with someone that long. It's it's a big impact. So, uh, shout out to Remington for just being a special member of the show. I always treasure those little moments and his. Me pretending to be Remington, and and of course to the the Matthews family as well. Well, Tom is on here <laughs> because we are going to do some JLA. We are. JLA began with Grant Morrison, but we will actually be in the Mark Wade era. But Tom, you're actually more well-versed in this particular book than I am. So I wondered if you would first 
tell us about your history with JLA. And then second, what would you like people who are just jumping in on these issues that we're going to do, what do you think they really need to know going into these issues, if anything at all? My with I guess I'll talk about my history with this series because you know the JLA and the Justice League have had have a sure. long history. Yeah, that's what I mean. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So and 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 if I'm being honest, uh, prior to you know my my history with the original original recipe Justice League of America's title is is bits and pieces. You okay. Know? Um, and I've read some of the JLI and um, so I first came upon this series when it first came out. So it, um, just prior to the premiere of JLA, and I think it was, I want to say the summer of 96, the Justice League America and Justice League International titles, which had been going on since 1987, uh, and were canceled uh, to make way for this. And, and from what I understand, the last days of those titles were pretty bad. And the team was kind of this remnant of the old JLI stuff and Wonder Woman was involved, but it was like biker shorts era Wonder <laughs> Woman. And, you know, that, that really 90s, like um, when she had lost the lost the title Wonder Woman to Artemis. Mm. And so she wore this outfit like was it was literally like bike shorts with like a, a black bustier and a, and a denim jacket. And it was it was like Mike Diodato Jr. did the art and it was like terrible. All right, so right before the JLA JLA number 1 came out, DC printed did a three-issue miniseries called Justice League of Midsummer's Nightmare. Uh, that was written by I think it was Mark Wade and Fabian Nietzsche and I don't remember who did the art, but it was basically this storyline where all of the what would come to be known as the Magnificent 7 were uh, captured by somebody and forced to live out like alternate realities and then eventually you know they per- persevere and prevail and they end up becoming the justice league again so it's superman batman wonder woman aquaman green lantern flash and um who am i forgetting superman batman wonder woman flash aquaman green lantern and martian, martian manhunter and uh I bought the first issue of the series, which was Grant Morrison and Howard Porter on, on the art, and then might have gotten a couple here and there, and it, it fell off my radar mainly not because I didn't like it or anything, but because I like went back to college and only had so much money to spend on comics, and there were other things. In the early 2000s, I bought these in the trades that they were, and what we have is um, – so I have the entire Grant Morrison JLA run as it was originally traded probably in like the late 90s or early 2000s. So I went back to this in about 2001, 2002. And we're, um, the issues we're going to look at are like smack in the middle or like almost like right toward the tail end. I think there's like one more trade after this of Morrison's uh, run on JLA. Uh, Mark Way did a few fill-in issues of the ones that, or which are the ones we're going to look at in detail today. And then right after Morrison's run was Mark Wade taking over for real this time. And Wade's first storyline, I think, was the Tower of Babel, which mm. has the, the, which I'm pretty sure you're familiar with. I am, and I, yeah, I read that. And yeah, yeah, I've read, I've read that trade. I don't own that trade. I checked out of the library a number of years ago. So, so I have, I have some, some experience with this. And then of course they would have that t- series with the Titans that we'll eventually get to. 
this I wouldn't say whether or not this is like my JLA, but this was a I just remember this being when I first read it the capacity that I did like really fun to read. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the few things by Grant Morrison that I really, really like. I'm not his biggest fan, especially when especially when the stories are just way too like seem to be like almost like purposely hard to purposely hard to understand, which sound makes me sound like an idiot, but Final I am crisis. an idiot. Yeah, it's just there are bits and pieces of Final Crisis that I really enjoyed, and then there are pieces of Final Crisis where I just I didn't not that I didn't get it, I just didn't understand why they had to be there and things like that. So, yeah, so I I tend to think of him as slightly overrated, but and Michael Leyland, if he's listening to this, is just like not happy with me. But, uh, <laughs> but I don't think he's like you know a terrible writer or anything. But then again, there are things by other much celebrated writers that. I either don't think are as good or can't stand uh, a particular work, which we shall not name, which you have reviewed and neither of us really liked at all by uh, Alan Moore is uh, on that list. So, you know, you can like things and not like things by writers. It's okay. Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty sure you know what I'm talking about, but I don't want to, I don't want to say its name. Thank you. So, but yeah, so I'm, I'm not as I was, I'm, I'm, pretty decently versed because I've read this a few times but I'm not like you know Encyclopedia Justice Ligica or something so okay was Crisis on Two Earths was that just a special or was that part of his run oh the Midsummer's Crisis on Two Earths was that the um, isn't that what it's called or, oh that was Earth what the two? movie was called yes the Earth 2 that was part of I think it's part of his run but it was a separate graphic novel okay so it was it was published I think it was I've read it I I don't have it and I'd have to look it up when the publication date is but I know it was published as a separate special and I think it was published in like graphic novel that prestige format as they used to call it the square bound Right um, right yeah so yeah, so yeah. it was published as a graphic novel, but I think it does. It, knowing Morrison, it definitely fits into the continuity. I I'm not 100 percent sure where. Okay. I do have that, but I, yeah, I just wondered where it fit in. So what would you say coming into, we're about to do 18 and 19, what -hmm. would people need to get in? I mean, do they need any background on what's been going on in the team or could they just jump in with 18 and 19? I think if you have a basic understanding of the DCU, even in the 90s or not in the 90s, you have a basic understanding of who the big seven characters are. You could probably jump into 18 and for the most part follow along. I mean, because you have um, most of the heroes in this are are names. If you want a little bit, if you want to go back a little bit, uh, it is worth reading this from issue one. Mm -hmm. Uh, You don't necessarily need to read that miniseries before A Midsummer's Nightmare. It's a good one. It's just it's not completely essential to the plot of any of the issue of of the first storyline but if you want to go all the way back to issue one and read forward or just read the trades therein uh the thing i've always loved about this series is that with the exception of a couple of storylines especially the ones toward the end of morrison's run i've always felt you can pick up a random justice league trade and you might it might take you a little bit of like okay a little bit to figure out like you know who is what doing where or like where they might be in the kind of grand scheme of things but they're very accessible 
as opposed to coming into like the middle of a of a huge crossover and not understanding or like like uh like Batman around this time like in the middle of smack in the middle of no man's land you probably would be able to eventually follow what the heck was going on with no man's land but there's a lot that happened before that you know that, that you probably should read yeah or at least know of before going in this uh this you if you know stuff it it helps but a lot of this does seem to be focused on okay there's a villain we have to fight the villain so it's it it, it uh, that's what i do like about it yeah, and I will – I mean I guess I could have answered it myself, but I thought it would be good to give background because I felt like a new reader because I hadn't read any of them. I just hopped right into 18, and I felt I felt okay. I knew who the main players were. I think the only question I would have had if I hadn't spoken with Michael Bailey about this prior with the girlfriend's issue was the electric blue Superman. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe wondering why Steel was there, that sort of thing. But otherwise, everything – seems pretty uh new reader friendly at least in this particular arc and morrison does his best to explain the blue superman or use it in a way that doesn't seem too weird or at least that that doesn't make you have to go back and read like issues of superman there was a point in um this is a few years down the road, but there's a point in Devin. It was either Devin Grayson or Jay Fairer's Titans run, where in his book Wally had been as dead. It was one of those like you know race into the Speed Force storylines, and another Flash comes out and he's another person, and you had to go back and read what was going on in the Flash to understand anything because he started appearing in the Titans here and there, oh, yeah. and so that that was we very well. JLA Earth 2, by the way, came out in December of 1999, and it was it coincided with issue 38 of JLA, and that is part of Morrison's last storyline. Okay. So, I, but I don't know what in the in the reading order. I don't know where what you know what comes where. Yeah. But and I'm getting this information off Mike's Amazing World. So not him. Haven't we, have we not had this discussion? Do you we have. I just choose to ignore you. Okay. Well, he's Brainiac. So when every one of my friends gets a really fatal virus and I'm the only one networking and podcasting, you'll feel really bad. All right. <laughs> okay. Well, with all of that intro, Tom, why don't you take it away? We're going to be reviewing and talking about JLA number 18 and 19, which is uh, – well, I think it's a pretty big story for just two issues, and yeah. some big stuff goes down. But this is the intro to Oracle, really, on this particular team. So, yeah, you're up, man. So I'm going to back up a little bit and just very quickly brush over the two issues, the storyline right before this, which is involved a villain named Prometheus, mainly because uh, Oracle does appear – Right toward the very, very end of this uh, this couple of issues storyline, even though her real presence in the JLA, as Stella said, starts right with eighteen, like really with eighteen. So I am re- I, I read this out of a, of a trade that I'm pretty sure is out of print. Now these JLA issues have been, uh, I think they were recollected recently. Um, I'm pretty sure they're available on Comicsology. I'm pretty sure that they've been recollecting them in trades. Uh, that are more complete or, or whatever than um, – or at least have different trade dress uh, than the ones they had. But I'm reading it out of the Strength in Numbers trade, which came out in cover introduction compilation copyright 1998. 
and uh, has several has several issues of the uh, of the series up until issue twenty three. So JLA sixteen through twenty three plus a special called Prometheus New Year's Evil, which I am going to talk about. So the Prometheus storyline is three issues. There's Prometheus New Year's Evil number one, which is titled "This is There Was a Crooked Man." Prometheus tells his origin story to a guy who has a hero identity of Retro, who actually isn't a hero, but a guy with a costume who won a costume contest. Uh, that is the grand prize is spend a J with a JLA. His parents, uh, Prometheus's parents, were hippie era Bonnie and Clyde. They die in a suicide by cop sort of situation when he's a kid. And when he's 16, Prometheus sets on his own to master everything he needs to in order to become the perfect supervillain. It's very much a Batman begins, but the guy ends up being a villain type of origin. He travels the world, trains with very like, you know, experts in combat, etc. He seeks enlightenment. And one thing he gets from Shambhala is a cosmic key that he uses to teleport himself and Retro to a place called the Void, which is represented by a white background with a crooked house on a lonely plot of land. He then reveals his plan to Retro. He can program a particular hero's moves into the CD-ROM drives on the sides of his helmet. Ask your parents what those are, kids. Then he kills Retro and disguises himself as him, heading out to meet the press. This goes into JLA 16, which is titled Camelot. 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 It's only a model. Look, my liege. Camelot. 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 It's only a model. is retro. Prometheus gets into the Watchtower where he's met by Superman, Wonder Woman, Flash, Green Lantern, Aquaman, Plastic Man, Steel, and Huntress. Batman's on watch duty, Watchtower duty, telepathically talking to Matt Martian Manhunter, who is disguised as Clark Kent. And the Wonder Woman in this particular issue is not Diana because at this point Diana was dead courtesy of John Byrne and Hippolyta had taken her place as Wonder Woman. Promethea first takes out Steel, accesses the Watchtower computer, and we get a really cool schematic diagram of the Watchtower. One of those like who's who ones that were always really cool. And then he takes out four more of the leaguers including Batman whom he has at his feet when Green Lantern and Flash find him. JLA 17 is Prometheus Unbound. And I guess it's one of those things that when you have a story entitled some Prometheus, with this character named Prometheus, you're going to go for that reference at some point. Superman and Wonder Woman try to get the civilians, which include the media, etc., who were on the watchtower for this spend of the day with the JLA announcement of the new team members thing to a safe, uh, safe way back to earth. But they're cut off by Prometheus who shot has shot GL and flash and then fled. Batman comes to and introduces Kyle and Wally to the JLA's newest secret member, Oracle. Oracle begins looking up whatever information she can on Prometheus and then sees if she can get a star lab shuttle for the civilians. In the shortcut to the shuttles, Prometheus, Superman, and Wonder Woman have a standoff. Prometheus knows how to get all of the civilians to safety so they can't exactly take him out. But Cat Grant slips away. We find out that she's not Cat Grant, reporter, but Catwoman. Bum, bum, bum. And Prometheus ends up retreating back to limbo as a result. So that is... Very briefly, Oracle's first appearance as part of the JLA, and now we're going to get into the two issues that we have 
to look at in depth, which are JLA 18 and JLA 19. And JLA 18 is entitled Synchronicity. Credits on this one. Mark Wade, guest writer. Howard Porter, penciler. John Dell, inks. Ken Lopez, letterer. Pat Garrahy, who killed the New Titans and whom for... And I will never forgive him for that. Nice. Colorist, heroic age separations, L.A. Williams assistant editor, and Dan Raspler was your editor. The release date, by the way, March 25th, 1998. The price, a buck 95. Sorry, Alan, you're out of luck. Wah, wah. We begin seven weeks ago in a military lab where Julian September, a professor of quantum mechanics, is developing a machine that has something to do with the harnessing the power of luck. His funding is denied by a general who's evaluating him, and he promptly kills that general, then winds up with the funding he needs. Flash forward to today. We're on the Snake River in Idaho, where Plastic Man and Aquaman take out a group of robbers who are trying to make a getaway, but realize too late that their raft was Plastic Man. But as they're turning the crooks into police, Aquaman starts to disappear, and it should be noted that it's at the same time that the expositional news network, copyright Michael Bailey, begins a story about Julian September, Nobel Prize winner. Cut to Gotham City, where a disgruntled employee has strapped a bomb to himself and has trapped Bruce Wayne and a number of his co-workers in an elevator. Bruce is about to cut the lights and go all Batman on the situation, but the mad bomber is taken out by Huntress. The day saved, she and Bruce have a quick conversation before Huntress disappears, and we see a deadline in Business Monthly about how Julian September is turning the stock market upside down for the seventh day in a row. In Newark, New Jersey, Superman, Wonder Woman, and Steel save seven jets from crashing into each other after they have been put on the exact same flight path. Then Steel disappears and there are newspapers all over the tarmac saying that Julian September has won the lottery seven days in a row. Cut to the Watchtower where John Jones is communication central and we also hear from Big Barda that Zoriel has disappeared. And I will uh, stop and insert that Zoriel is a literally an angel from kind of like the DC representation of heaven. And I believe he was created, I want to say by Grant Morrison, and I believe he was created as a stand-in for Hawkman. Because at this point in the DC continuity, Hawkman, I believe, is dead. So, and he wanted like, he's, so he's the Hawkman, sort of Erstaz Hawkman. Anyway, back to the story. John contacts Oracle, who explains that weird blind luck has gone crazy. Some exact species of lizard is raining down on three Ohio towns. I don't know why I phrased it this way. Uh, an old piece of Skylab fell into the Air and Space Museum, and I guess they didn't have a 20-sided die and a bunch of camp kids to save everyone. And every single person in Wyoming with the last name of Dixon has contracted typhoid. Sorry, Chuck. I guess Chuck Dixon isn't very good at playing Oregon Trail. Anyway, Oracle is interrupted by Green Lantern, who radios in from Washington, D.C. to tell John that he and Flash are taking on seven supervillains who simultaneously decided to try and kidnap the president. The rest of the league, at least the ones who haven't disappeared, show up to help, and Big Barda and Wonder Woman are thrown through the wall of the White House and into the office where they come face-to-face -face with not the president, but Julian September? There he is. Barda disappears and we see Oracle explain to John that she's done some research on him. He's a quantum physicist who says he discovered the building blocks of probability. He claims he chanced upon a way to manipulate coincidence at a subatomic level. She has no idea why September's in the White House, though. Superman and the Martian Manhunter try to get Julian to come with them because he obviously does not belong in the White House. Julian responds 
by holding some orb-like device in his hands. He says that he can manipulate anything and creates the improbable, an earthquake in the middle of Washington, D.C., which at the time was improbable, but as you and I know from a few years ago, earthquakes are possible on the East Coast. Oh my gosh, I was, it was summertime, I was in my classroom planning, getting ready for the new year. I was in the middle of some really bad professional development things, so oh that got interrupted. Did you get so to go home? I did get to go home. Well, that's exciting. Yeah, in a sense. Nothing was the only thing that was damaged was the French press coffee maker in my house. Well, death to coffee anyways. Yeah. Well, according to you. Oracle then responds that uh, everything is going all crazy all over the world. Sudan has gone dry. There's a tsunami in Mobile, Alabama, and seven of Tokyo's skyscrapers have just burned into flame. Burst into flame. Julia says that he's in sorry. Julian <laughs> says that he's in control of everything. He can create disaster, but then find a way to stop it. Just like how the JLA came to save him from the villains trying to get him. Batman busts in and destroys his magic eight ball or whatever that orb he's holding is, and Julian disappears. The real president comes out of hiding, and it's not the president they're used to seeing the jla concludes that the device that destroying the device which is called the engine of chance did nothing to stop the probability issue and it seems like the past is being affected as well as the present batman lectures the league on how he's figured it all out and how it all has a connection to the number seven but before he can reveal what it all means he disappears next things get worse and that is in jla 19 Seven Soldiers of Probability. Creative team, Mark Wade, guest writer, Howard Porter, penciler, John Bell, and Walden Wong, inkers, Ken Lopez, letterer, Pat Garrahy, colorist, Heroic Age Separations, L.A. Williams, assistant editor, Dan Raspler, editor. The release date on this was April 22nd, 1998, and the price was a buck ninety-five. We open with a recap of last issue, or at least as the narration tells us, the last seven hours. Seven JLA members have disappeared and are in a world where, quote, anything is possible, which is shown by Barbara, who they're coloring with brown hair in my trade paperback, by the way. I don't know if that was. Yeah. Okay. So it's in your issue, too. Uh, Staring at a Gotham Gazette headline saying that Bruce Wayne has returned from years abroad and apparently the Waynes survived the mugging. Oracle is stressed. The League watches the U.S. Capitol. As the U.S. Capitol changes into a building that looks like the English Parliament, Martian Manhunter deduces that Julian September is not behind this. Batman, he had mentioned something called synchronicity, which is the convergence of related events as well as a killer album by the police. So the machinations of Julian September and someone else have converged, perhaps? John flies off angry angry to the lab in the Pentagon where Julian worked. In Gotham, Oracle hears her answering machine again after parents pick up, and it's Bruce who says he's coming by with his parents. In D.C., the weather is getting worse. The Flash notices that there are only now seven hours in a day. Then they head to the Pentagon, where the Martian Manhunter has found Julian September slumped over in a chair, dead of a heart attack. John tries to contact Oracle telepathically, but she says it's not a good time. John then berates her for supposedly using changing history for her personal gain. They argue because she's basically been trying to figure out a way to keep the Waynes alive while fixing the problem, which John says is 
is a fool's errand and he knows that she knows it. Then, after Oracle unlocks Julian's encrypted files, John disappears while telling them to tell the Adam everything when he arrives. Soon enough, Ray Palmer arrives, looks at the notes, and says this is all the result of an experiment where scientists didn't harness the power of coincidence, but figured out that there is a natural order to the universe. They did it by splitting a photon. Julian was trying to replicate the experiment by dividing seven photons, but it went wrong and wound up destroying the synchronicity he needed and poisoned the natural order of reality, releasing a probability cancer. Because comic books. While he's doing this, Adam builds some sort of contraption that will take them into those seven photons, which is where everyone is being held. They go subatomic, and they begin trying to put those photons back together. While they're doing it, the probability cancer spreads so that someone other than Kyle has the ring. Wally was never given super speed, but was instead charred by the lightning. And the entire time, Barbara is scared to hell that Thomas and Martha Wayne are going to be coming through her front door. But they succeed, and it's Batman who comes through her door. The League returns to full strength, and they explain to everyone how it happened. The final page and a half are a conversation between John and Barbara, where he apologizes for being a jerk and suggests that she might be able to get some seriously good prosthetics for her legs. After all, they built a watchtower on the moon. She respectfully declines, and when he asks if she misses her mobility, she replies, more than words can express, and I dream of the medical breakthroughs that may someday restore it. But in the meantime, I've worked hard to treat what happened to me as an opportunity, not a handicap. I concentrate on the good I can do now that I've been forced to exercise my mind. Despite his evil, John, September had the right notion. We then see Batman in a graveyard, followed by the grave of his parents as she finishes. Sometimes our only comforts come from believing that there is no chance that whatever happens in this world happens for a reason. The end. The end. (laughs) Well, thank you for that. You know, what do you think? Do you think that this was perhaps too big of a story for just two issues? It's a lot. It is a lot packed into two issues. Um, this is just prior to the very beginning of the writing for the trade era. Okay. Because this is like this. This strength and numbers trade is like several smaller storylines in one trade, as opposed to like what would become the norm that you and I have been privy to for a number of years now, where sure. it's six issues done, six issues done, and, and that I think I want to say that started like a couple of years down the road here, like the early 2000s, it really started to take hold. But yeah, you're right. This is a lot in one particular issue or two, one particular two-issue storyline. Yeah, and I feel like it could have been not crisis big, but it had the, the feel of, you know, maybe a four-issue event mm-hmm. or something like that, you know, because I'm thinking back to Final Night or Genesis, like they, you know, they could match up probably better than Genesis, but you know, anything could match up. Millennium <laughs> was better than Genesis. Sure, sure, but there's just some crazy stuff that's going on. I think maybe it could have slowed down a little bit and really investigated <laughs> each of the characters, but you know, before and after they were they were because once they started 
disappearing. It was just going really quickly, and then I felt like it was really rushed when they got rid of, when Batman disappeared, and then Jean disappeared, and then the Adam's there, and then the Adam comes up with a reasonable explanation, and then it all comes together. So it felt just really quick, and I almost wanted another issue to space it out. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, although Wade seems to be following the same kind of idea that Morrison was, that I've noticed from like and, and um when you gave me the numbers of the issues that I went through my trade and, and you know and, and wrote the summary, I did go back and I read the couple of trades prior to this because it had been so long since I read the J Morris's JLA. I was like, well why don't I just go ahead and reread this, you know, just for fun. And something I noticed and, and I'm probably not the first person to say this is that every every storyline Morris was like Morrison was like, well, I think his mentality was these are the seven greatest heroes in the DC universe, so they should always be fighting like gargantuan threats to humanity. So it's mm-hmm. almost like every one of the storylines has that sort of go big or go home sort of feel to it. Yeah. So Wade seems to be following that template pretty well. Like if there's nothing, uh, there aren't really any, um, there's no story that I can remember in Morrison's JLA. That is the equivalent of, uh, like those every once in a while when you'd have a, a book such as uh, the new teen Titans, for instance, had a, a day in the life in issue eight or that um, one of my favorite all time issues of X factor and, and a lot half of your audience is going to know what I'm talking about. The therapy session issue, it was 87 with doc Sampson that follows the executioner song storyline from about 91, 92 where the entire issue is each member of X, uh, of X Factor being psychoanalyzed by Doc mm-hmm. Sampson. Morrison doesn't do any of that. He doesn't seem to have any, it, you know, there, there's there's little jokes, there's character moments, of course, but everything is big scale, big thing. There's no, like, one issue that, to me, that stood out as, like, okay, this is the sort of breather issue or the intimate moment issue gotcha. or something like that. Yeah, yeah but, but you're right. This could have been four, three yeah. or four, and it would have still been... Um, it would have still been uh, very good. I still liked it, though. Oh, yeah, I did as well. And I like that it was grounded in real science because I had the single issue. So there, mm-hmm. were, in the letters page, Mark Wade actually explains the experiment that Adam is using. In the oh, story. and I made the Because Comic Book jokes because I was just like, <laughs> yeah, I don't so know. Don't you feel bad about yourself right oh, now? Oh, I teach English, not science. Sure. Oh, what, do you, what do you think about the, the bad guy, Julian Day? Or not Julian Day. Julian September? Not his name. Yes, that's. I kept thinking it was going to be Calendar Man, and I wished his name was not Julian. Yes, Julian September. There is like a silver bronze age Batman feel about him, like Batman villain feel about him. He does. He did kind of remind me of the Calendar Man in that regard. Sure. Like you know, there the, there is something. There, this is a very. It's a very classic supervillain scheme or something. It's just. Yeah. It, it is. It is. <laughs> the because comic books joke about the 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 lab experiment actually does apply here because it's very much of a comic book trip, but it works really well. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if I like the villain as much as I just like the chaos he causes, sure, or the scheme, right? Yeah. Like you know, the yeah. villain as a character himself, I didn't find as engaging or cool as just the things that he had caused. Yeah, and it's interesting that really in the end he doesn't turn out to be the main antagonist mm-hmm. because it was really you know these fractured atoms that were were causing or particles that were causing the issue it's just yeah. that he was sort of an agent of that chaos yeah uh but yeah i agree with you that 
him in general, I, I didn't think he was as interesting. I think perhaps even Wade might not have thought he was as interesting because there's not really much background. He's mm-hmm. just like on the scene right away and then everything starts and like you see him in the newspapers and stuff and then he's president all of a sudden. There's like no background. He doesn't really twirl his mustache too much. But yeah, all the stuff that goes awry because of him were were the most engaging parts. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah. Let's talk about Oracle here. Yes. Now, I, I'm i biased, obviously, but mm-hmm. I felt actually like her stuff was the best part of the story. I thought it was nerve-wracking and emotional because she's really stressed out over the Waynes coming to visit <laughs> and what it will mean for Bruce to lose them again. And, you know, as a reader, I think you probably came to a judgment anyways of why she might want this to... Uh, this story, this timeline to stay the same. And, you know, in the end, she was misjudged, though maybe in the back of the, her mind, she may have thought about, you know, oh, Bruce's parents were brought back. Why wasn't my spine brought back? Mm-hmm. But just the fact that it, it was something that was brought to our minds and everything, I just thought that that stuff was, was the best. It was just really suspenseful for me. Yeah, I I liked I I did like I know I made a joke about like how the entire time this is going on that they're coming to the door. Yeah. You know, yes. it's like that scene. It's you know like it's the end of Ferris Bueller's Day Off and he's desperately trying to get into bed and his mother's like slowly turning the door or knob or whatever. Right. Yep. But you're right. It's it, it Wade for a story that is so big. It is one of the few more slightly more personal moments of the story because it deals with, you know, the tragedy of, of Thomas and Martha Wayne. But he 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 does that and builds that tension. Mm-hmm. And he actually does it in a way that doesn't come off as silly. You know? Uh, yeah, absolutely. It doesn't it, – it's not for comedy. It's like you really are like worried about how that's going to – yeah, you know how this is all going to go down, and then and it, it, she opens the door, and it's just Batman, and and everything is is right with the world. Do you think she serves a good purpose on the team in this particular story? I do, but I also think that what I like about her uh, is that Wade, uh, as a brand new member of the team, and coordinating on the level that she has to, it's just her. Like you could tell, she's got a little bit of a learning curve. Mm-hmm. You know, she's she's dealt with egos before because she was part of the Suicide Squad. Right. There are very few egos in the DC universe bigger than Batman's. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe Guy Gardner's, but we know how that oh, turned dear. out, right? So, but so she deals with Batman, but she's coordinating and she's done similar stuff for the Bat Family, but she is at this point. It's almost like she's taking her and John almost share this sort of I don't know if it's called a field commander role or what, but you know, she's obviously the info the info person. Right. But she's also the sort of that communications hub. Mm-hmm. And in the field he's kind of that too because he's got the telepathic link and it's almost like she's still learning how to handle all of this. And something that is on a much bigger level than the street crime and stuff in Gotham that she's that she's accustomed to dealing with, you know, despite her experience with the Suicide Squad, which could be pretty big at times, but not like, you know, time is completely screwed up and I've got to help fix it. Yeah. And even with some of the bat 
events, she wasn't, I think, this involved. I, I think we'll see her more, especially during No Man's Land, where it'll get pretty big. But this is, I, I think you're right that there is a bit of a learning curve. I mean, she's certainly thrown into it. I'm glad that she has the background, at least, to, to get to know or get in touch with people and, and lead them where they need to go. So this is not unreasonable for her to uh to tackle but yeah she's she's i almost imagine that when jean calls her that she's probably been been relaying with several other heroes that you just don't see on panel mm-hmm. and because she does say that that she's swamped and everything but i think she she plays a good part in being able to do it. the only weird thing i think is just that they're so far separated uh it's the communication is more telepathic. You kind of want she's in her watchtower rather than being in, or the clock tower rather than being in the watchtower, mm-hmm. which will be which I imagine happens soon. Yeah, uh, that that she'll be able to be up there. So that's the only weird thing because it just seems like we're literally and, and metaphorically in two different places. You know, the action and then her little sort of void of of everything or vacuum of everything. <laughs> now you mentioned that, and, and I have to say that. I don't know. I've only read as far as the end of Morrison's run and then the one storyline of um, Wade's. So beyond this, I don't know the rest of her tenure in the JLA. I'm not 100% sure that anyone outside of Batman knows who she is. Okay. So I don't think she ever actually – if she goes to the Watchtower, I don't think it's on a permanent basis. I think a lot of times she is operating out of Gotham. Okay. Well, that'll be good to see. Yeah, and I'm not trying to mansplain it away here. I was like, I'm just trying to think of like, does she go to the Watchtower? But from what I remember, I think she's always Oracle, and like the only one who knows she's Barbara is um, Bruce. Mm, yeah, yeah. Well, and Jean, I guess. Yeah. She's reading her uh, her mind. There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess we'll see. Her wardrobe in this, and her haircut in this. Mm-hmm. It's like. 90s mom I, I don't know the yeah well i mean it's a sweater you know it's a green sweat i like it how it's green mm-hmm. um i don't know if that's intentional or not it, it does go with the computer screens and it, it's reminiscent of it reminds you know smallville how they had tom welling always dress in in the the reds and, Red and blues yeah and of course you know her little moniker is is that green oracle mask mm-hmm. but the the hair i i think is fine you know prof prof Oh, we always talk about the hair. It's just that it's brunette more than auburn. It's it's which is it's the colorist, and I, yeah, I somebody so just and and you heard my disdain for that person, so oh, I'm gonna I blame see. him. Okay, uh, but yeah, I I mean I, well, I don't know what to say about uh, '90s momish. Do do '90s moms wear? <laughs> I don't know. It's just very like, but then again, at the same time. To be fair, it does not go the comic route of the 90s where, like, her breasts are hanging out of whatever low-cut shirt she's wearing sure. or a thong yeah. showing or something. Because I've seen pictures, covers of things that were, like, Ed Benes drew her. Mm. And it's just, like, unnecessarily boobish. Yeah. And I'm like, that's never been, like, Barbara no. to me. Yeah. You know, so like here Porter's drawing her in a way that is just very more um for lack of a better word ordinary. Like it's just she's 
yeah, she's not she's not wearing any – A, she doesn't need a super suit because she's behind a computer desk, but she's not wearing anything like scantily clad or revealing or something you go out to the club in because she's sitting at home behind a computer screen, you know? So yeah. Yeah. Um, it would have been – we don't – yeah. It would have been cool to see her in PJs or something. But <laughs> yeah, well, I was going to say like we don't know what she was doing when, when all of this chaos started happening because occasion, you know, sometimes she'll be in bed. Sometimes she'll be working out. So who knows what she was doing? This, these might be her comfort clothes. There's like a sad, this. soggy bowl of Cheerios in the kitchen somewhere that she never actually got. She likes soggy, uh, soggy cereal for whatever reason. And that's really? why she and Dick can't be together because Dick does not like soggy cereal. Yes, that's what you'd miss that in my my shipper like update between the two and in the previous episode. Uh, I listened to the previous episode. But I don't <laughs> I, I don't remember that particular detail. Okay. I th- here's the thing: like you know, if you're Barbara and and you know you're going to call over your computer, like one of your desk drawers has to have like a box of pop tarts in it. Maybe. So. Something. Yeah. Yeah, I actually want to talk about the art. Sure. What did you think of it overall, besides the coloring? I made a reference to Michael Leyland earlier. Sure. And um, I just listened to, as of this recording, the latest episode of Hey Kids Comics, where they covered Identity Crisis. Oh. And I know I know your affinity for that. I love it, yeah. And uh, you should if you – I know you don't listen to a lot of, a lot of our podcasts, but um, Andy and Michael take a look at it. It's really – they did a great job. I mentioned in an email of mine they read, I mentioned like the, like imagine like had Todd McFarlane actually stayed with the big two companies, what would it have, you know, like what would it have been for like a Grant Morrison, Todd McFarlane, JLA or something? And then um, Michael actually compares him, Howard Porter, to Todd McFarlane saying like this is very, this is like the 90s ish. JLA art you get. I can see that comparison, but there's some like really bad 90s like Liefeld, Liefeldian art in some of the stuff prior to the Morrison run, like in titles like Extreme Justice and stuff. Oh. This is all right. I think it fits the. I th- I've always thought that Porter's pencils fit the sort of bombastic tone that Morrison was going for, and I think they fit here. Um, sometimes Barbara's facial face seems like, um, inconsistent. Yeah. Like she's got like the hair is always the same. The clothes are always the same, but the face always seems like, uh, you know, like they're switching back and forth between models or actresses or something like that. Mm. Yeah. And the coloring is just on the hair. No. Sure. Start pack Gary. You were terrible. Yeah. You were, you were not a good editor. You're not a good color colorist. Yikes. I have problems with the faces in general. Mm-hmm. I think some of them, Jean seems to be consistently drawn well, but there, I would say Barbara, there are some really weird, I'm on like bottom of page, what page is this? Let me find it here. There's a really weird Barbara picture. Ah, bottom of page nine and issue 19, if you can find it. It's, it's the one where Julian September is dead. It's just a really weird look of bar. I don't even know it. I don't know. How to even is that the one where it? she's got like her hand up to her? Yes. Yeah, that is Doesn't weird. She her look weird. Yeah. yeah. And then when they're in the little weird universe and Kyle Rayner goes back to normal, like his face, all of a sudden he looks like my friend Kevin Cushing. <laughs> I don't know. 
<laughs> like, what's it? Where did he grow all that hair? I don't, I don't know. But so the faces are the things that are inconsistent for me, and mainly the female faces because I think even Wonder Woman looks unattractive at times. Uh, but the bodies and stuff, and the actions of Adam coming out—that was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. So, and there were fun touches. Like I liked seeing Plastic Man be the Grim Reaper. I thought that I got a chuckle out of that. He's just randomly behind the. He apparently is just a very uncouth person and can make these jokes when yeah. there's a serious situation. Because <laughs> a man's dead and he's there in the form of the Grim Reaper. There's um, a um, <laughs> there's one storyline. And Porter doesn't draw it. I don't remember who draws it, but uh, I think it's – I want to say it's Big Barda oh, okay. is on the team at this point, and they're wondering where he is or something, and he, he's wearing him. Oh, dear. He's like the dress, and it's oh, just – yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of funny. The thing I don't – the one thing I don't like about the way he draws Batman is the way he gives him those shoulder points – you see it at the very end of issue 19 where um, where he finally opens the door and, you know, it's he's there and not his parents. And, like, he's got the – Phil Jimenez used to – would draw Batman like this sometimes with, like, almost like the sh- like big pointy shoulder things. Yeah. And I never liked that. Mm. But that's just a personal preference. I mean, I'm sure yeah. somebody, somebody out there likes it and can make my opinion on it. But uh, I was ambivalent to this particular costume design for Batman. I never thought it was terrible. I, I, it, it still had the, the the black bat with the yellow oval, which is my favorite right. Batman l- insignia. Mm-hmm. And I totally understood making it like you know black with like kind of that black on black. And it, it for me it was all right. Um, my favorite is the classic. My favorite Batman artist was Marshall Rogers. So. Okay. That, that late seventies bronze age Batman look is is my personal favorite. But but not not the scalloped pointy things on the shoulders. Are you a fan of Kelly Jones? No, um, not really. Okay. I do have – I have – what do I have? Uh, Batman Dracula Red Rain. Oh, yes. That's good. But that – Oh, yeah. That's a case where Kelly Jones's art fits the story really well. Yeah. But I was not a fan of him when he was actually drawing Batman. It's been a while and uh, I think when we did Contagion, some of his stuff was good. Some of it wasn't. You know, so as I read through Cataclysm and, and other stuff, if he's in there, I'll have to uh, I'll have to give it a second look. But I wasn't yeah. a fan at the time. Uh, so final thoughts on these two issues, this story? Overall, they were fun. And this is the type of stuff I love out of the Justice League. Uh, just big adventures sort of stuff. Uh, this would have made a great animated episode, mm, either of absolutely. of the JLA show or of the Super Friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I've always kind of wanted out of my Justice League is like because and that's I probably because when I was a kid, it was the Super Friends and that sort of big crazy storyline that only these heroes teaming up can handle and this is one of them and it was like i really really enjoyed it yeah 
Yeah, I thought it was great. I thought it was almost like a what if or else worlds take almost, you know, because different things were changing. We were getting rid of some heroes, things like that. And I, it was also nice to see the Adam again because he was making his return in Suicide Squad when I was reading through that. That was a big cliffhanger and story point. Mm-hmm. So I enjoyed seeing that. But uh, overall, I just really loved the Oracle stuff and seeing her um, helping out with Jean. Uh, you know, if he's mission commander, then, you know, being that, that person who's uh, who's helping out. She, she, she is sort of the marshal in the Alias universe, I would say. Would you agree with that? Yeah, she's definitely she is definitely uh, definitely Marshall or um, was it what was her name Chloe on Twenty Four? Oh, I've never seen. I've I watched like a season and a half of it. There was a character very similar, but yeah, Marshall in the Alias universe yeah. would be the yeah would be the the good one. So so I look forward to to seeing more of her, and I hope that she has you can see a relationship develop because. One of the things being tough as Oracle right now in, in what I've been reading is that she doesn't really have a relationship with the people that she's working with if they don't know who she is. It's different for the Batman family. But, for instance, Dinah, they kind of have this growing and, and budding friendship, but there's only so far you can go to be friends with someone if you don't know who they are on the other side. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping that, cause there seems, I mean, it's very intimate talking with someone with your mind. So I think there's something there between her and John, you know, a friendship potential, at least trust. And he also made a mistake and, and apologized. But I wonder if we'll see more interactions between her and the other team, or is she really going to be cloistered, which I hope is not the, what happens? I, I hope that we get to really see her in the JLA, not Oracle and the JLA kind of thing. So, I like the fact that they are not afraid to have John show emotion. Yeah, because I mean, I enjoyed. I'm um, funny enough. You mentioned Alias because of the voice of Marsha mm-hmm. Manhunter on on J- Justice League, and I really enjoyed him. But sometimes he was very. He wasn't exactly Spock-like. Sure. But sometimes I feel in some of the Martian Manhunter stuff I've read or seen portrayed on television that there's a tendency to want to go Spock and have him be a little more even-keeled all the time. And I like the fact that he legitimately got mad at her. And he wouldn't really apologize for it, but in the heat of the moment... He was ticked. Oh yeah, and yelling at her, and you know, for for doing something, you know, for in the sense that um, because in her in her mind, she knows, you know, if if she has to let the Waynes die, she has to let the Waynes die. You know, like the the restoring normal and everything. Mm -hmm. So, which is interesting because if they have a telepathic link, you'd think he'd be able to see like deep inside what her real feelings are. But at the same like why time, she's so upset? Yeah, but she's, he's also got um, all the other stuff to do. Well, he, that and he's all. I think he's also a very moral type of character. So he's not going to go there out of respect mm. and okay. uh, and decency. I see. You know. Yeah, I just watched Fantastic Beasts and Beasts and Where to Find Them, and I have to say, my favorite character was Queenie. Uh huh. And so this discussion just reminded me of her because she would she was one of those thought readers. What was it? Uh, Le- 
game or something like that because legio means you know to, or lego means to read but it was something like that legging men's okay wasn't that what it was you saw it didn't you um yeah but <laughs> uh, Brett was watching it one day. I was half paying attention. Oh, okay. See, that's the way I, I remember you said. You oh, I noticed that. It. I remember. It. Well, I mentioned that uh, that um, Daniels from Alien right. Covenant was in it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I thought anyway. So I was just thinking because throughout that, um, people would be like, "Stop reading my mind" or whatever. But uh-huh. she couldn't help it very much. But anyways, I thought about that. So uh, yeah, how many out of ten misfired guns? How much would you get th- give this? Probably about a nine. Okay, I'm going to give it an eight point five out of inspired yeah. guns. So cool. Okie dokie. Our first JLA. How do you feel? I feel good. These are <laughs> these are fun. They're fun comics. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, now it's time for some listener email, and I'm going to keep Tom on with me for this. Ooh, Meltdown. The first one actually comes from Tom. <laughs> oh, so that's why. I know, I'm trying Isn't to remember what funny? I emailed you about. I know. Well, there's also a not for air situation. Uh, Stella, so I finished your coverage of this year's San Diego Comic-Con, and I wanted to write in and commend you on such an excellent job. I had seen some of the news coming out of the con while it was happening, but your coverage went beyond what I had seen and, quite honestly, made me feel like I was actually there. Well, I did listen to the entire episode. There were definitely segments that I listened to more than others, especially the Arrow, Supergirl, and Young Justice interviews, which made me want to finally catch up on what I've missed from all three series. And in the case of Arrow, that's at least three seasons worth of show, so I have a task in front of me. I know you've been doing this for a while now, but I have to ask. When you're interviewing someone like Melissa Benoist or Stephen Amell, who is probably more well-known beyond, say, comic book writers and artists, do you find it to be a tougher interview? I probably would have stuck my foot in my mouth by by asking Paget Brewster about her time on Friends. So I'm curious as to how you get into the right mindset to interview someone that well-known. Also, were you uh, were you able to keep a straight face when Tara Strong mentioned how much she liked the killing joke? <laughs> this is not to bring up a very sore subject, but I heard her talk about it in the episode and could almost hear you inter- your internal screaming through my iPod. She seems really nice, though, and it was fun to hear her talk about her work and her approach to different characters. Overall, a great episode. I love the use of Toad the Wet Sprocket toward the end there, even though I don't know the context, but it reminded me of high school. I'm old. Which was cool. Can't wait for the next one, Tom. The next six-hour one, Tom? Mm. Yeah, let me answer some of these questions here. The easiest one is the Tara Strong. Every time she mentioned this, because she actually mentioned a couple times there was a panel for the – it's been 10 years, I think. Or has it been longer? Has it been 20 years since the first direct-to-video DC film came out? Oh, and probably. It, or I guess it's 30 films, 15 years, something like that. Yeah. And so each of the panel went through and said what their favorite one was, and she said Killing Joke. And basically I, like, shake my fist in the air and say Betrayal. And so, yeah, when she says that about the Killing Joke, I, I sort of internally, because we're at a round table and she could visibly see what I'm doing, I sort of internally roll my eyes. <laughs> and I'm like, why do you do this to me, Tara Strong? How, how could you? So it does hurt a great deal. 
as for you mentioned about sticking your foot in your mouth, like people, aka Josh Bertoni, asked Paget Brewster, I think about community and stuff. So I think because I think she was on there, I think that's the show. So you could have definitely asked her about her time on Friends. Okay. I think that would have been fine. She, she she's yeah. such a. I just remember her and Friends, and I remember her on this show. It was very short lived, called Andy Richter Saves the Universe. I think it was oh. the name of it. She is so funny mm-hmm. that I wish she'd do more, um, like straight out comedic stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So. I, I think she's a pretty cool person. I, uh, the first, she was, I think, Lois on that Elseworlds take can't remember now what it was called but like batman was a vampire and wonder woman was pretty lethal and i can't remember about superman that that one came out uh last san diego and i guess she got in trouble because she revealed something on <laughs> twitter and so the pr guy like hovers around her from now on just to be be sure she doesn't reveal anything so she got in trouble which almost endures or endears her to me even more that you know people can make mistakes but your other question is a good one. I actually feel – I usually get nervous before interviews in any case and Josh makes fun of me and he was telling his young ward Ben that you know I'll stay up and the night before I memorize my questions, which I absolutely do. And Before I even go to the con, I do my – I reread things if I need to and I write down my questions because I don't like to be stressed out before. But I've, I feel like I've gotten into a pretty good groove with comic writers that there might be some nerves but I feel pretty confident because I know what I'm talking about. But the roundtable ones are a little more intimidating because you might not even get to ask a question because, you know, there might be five or six other people at the table. And then you really have to make a good question. So I don't know. I mean, (laughs) you and I have, like, talked together and been in person together that you might recognize my voice on the audio. Mm -hmm. But I, I didn't really ask many questions. And the ones that I did, I was, like, pretty confident about what I was asking and everything. Yeah. But those, you know... Yeah, I'm right next to Stephen Amell, this very attractive man, and you're like trying to come up with a question that's not inane. So those are they're harder just because of the pressure. They only have like three to five minutes. Mm-hmm. What can you come up with? Something that maybe they can talk about because oftentimes you know they haven't started shooting or they can't reveal anything. So those are a bit harder. But yeah, those people are intimidating. Who are you in the roundtable with? Are you in there with other podcasters, internet sites, or anything, or is is there anybody from, say, a more national, like a publication, like an Entertainment Weekly or something, Vanity Fair or something like that, they're in there with you? Yeah, should be. I think some EW or I don't know if you consider IGN or if you would consider that national. But yeah, but they would most likely be in the video line. Okay. Uh, which is, yeah, so the, the audio stuff, I'll be more with smaller publications okay. or podcasts or, yeah, things like that. Yeah. It, it, you, you, well, actually, what you're describing was, this goes back many years for me, but uh, before my tenure as the editor-in-chief of my college paper, I was on I was with a sports editor. I did have to cover a couple of lacrosse games, and it reminded, Ooh. what you were describing, reminded me of having to do the post-game Oh. interviews and I'd be standing there next to a couple of guys from the Baltimore Sun or you know a couple of other papers and stuff like that and here I am with a loyal loyal Greyhound with my little micro cassette recorder and you're right I would get maybe maybe one question in yeah because a 
what would happen inevitably is like here are these guys who are like veterans and I'm kind of using this as an opportunity also in a sense to kind of shadow them. So that's part of it. But at the same time, like they're already ad- asking the questions that were on my mind and that I maybe get one in. So so I, I understand and your nerves there. But look, I like to prepare like crazy like that, especially for something as yeah. manic as a comic can, I mean, Baltimore is not on the scale of San Diego, but even I feel like when I'm trying to do stuff in there and I'm like sure. maybe going from creator to creator and asking questions and stuff that it's a whirlwind and like, I don't panic, but it's just like, there's so much going on and I got to get it all done. It's like, it's hard to, for me, what's hard, it's always harder to slow down. So you're preparing the night before, like, and being like on it. There's nothing to make fun of there. I actually <laughs> do the same thing. I don't think I'd memorize my questions, yeah. but I'd run through them to make sure oh. that I knew everything. And I'd maybe, if I had to do more research, do a little more just in case I need, yeah. there was something I'd missed. But no, I, I you know, I, I have some experience with journalism. I taught journalism. I'd come prepared. Sure. So, so I'm, I'm right there with you. Yeah. And sometimes I ask if I don't like the phrasing that I've used, I ask. Josh or Don, like, what's a better way to phrase this? So, yeah, things like that. Well, on to this one, which I'm sure uh, Tom has some response to. Here we go. It's from Josh Bertone. So he says, I listened to all six hours of your San Diego episode. It really was 557. People get it right. Why so short? Uh, you told me to write in and whine about it, so here I am. Six hours is not long enough to cover the variety of adventures we had in the detail they deserve. No love for Magikarp? After all he did on the trip? Our killer bee attack got nary a mention? Andrea Beaumont bathroom ambushes? At least we spared poor Don another reading of his Piglet adventure. I think for a more thorough look at our time in SCCC, we need an eight our show maybe next year now on to our girl babs one thought has occurred to me in the past few years jim and sarah essen have gotten married we have yet to see the effects of having a stepmom on barbara i don't even recall the two of them interacting until no man's land but i could be wrong missed opportunity by 90s dc at the time uh let's start with the easy one because i'm sure you'll have a lot to say about the other thing what do you think about this do you think that was a missed opportunity that we could have seen uh sarah essen and barbara have and forge a relationship back in the 90s you mean yeah yeah i think it was i i i'm, t- I'm trying to i'm racking my brain right now i'm trying to think back to the because i remember they were i remember when i came on when i started reading batman comics in about 1990, 91, it was right around the time that she came back into his life, and um, they were both obviously older. And then I had I had read uh, Year One by that point, and then yeah, they did get married. I don't remember seeing Barbara in a lot of those comics, if I'm being completely honest, or seeing the Barbara Jim. You know, like yeah, you're right. Yeah. I think it was a little. Bit, I think it was a bit of a missed opportunity, especially considering. This is before Nightwing, Catwoman, etc. I was reading one out of the. T- uh, there were like there were four Batman titles. Mm-hmm. There was uh, Shadow, the Batman Detective, Shadow and Legends. I'd pick up Shadow and Legends if it either interested me or if it was something that tied into something else. I was reading Detective on a regular basis. Why was I reading Detective? 
Chuck Dixon. Dixon. Yeah, so Chuck Dixon and Graham Nolan. That's that's my '90s Batman. So yeah. um, that's yep. that's my sweet spot when it comes to the '90s and Batman. I would have loved to see more of that, but to, if I recall correctly, I don't think we got very much of that. And I think Chuck Dixon would have done that very very well because I always thought yeah. he had a good handle on both Jim and Barbara. But yeah, so it is yeah. a missed opportunity. But especially considering that Barbara got more and more of a role. As the decade went on into and into the 2000s, it would have been really interesting to see. But at the same time, I don't know if it would have been a stepmother thing, though. Yeah. Because Jim and Sarah were past middle age. Like, and maybe it was just the way they were drawing Jim Gordon. He always looked like he was like one month shy of retirement. Um, yeah. No, no, they were drawing him as an older man. No, he was, yeah. As opposed older, to, yeah. and Sarah at that point was an older. So these characters were probably, what, in their 50s or their 60s? Yeah. Let's say 50s. I always imagined Sarah was younger than Jim, though. Yeah, I think Sarah is younger than Jim. But I th- they would say these characters are middle aged, so neither of them are. And Barbara is a grown woman. Right. So it's not a stepmom scenario as if it were um, Jack when it was Jack Drake and Dana who was the woman he married after in the middle of the Chuck Dixon Robin comic mm. you know or if it yeah. was like Stephanie Brown's new stepdad or something like that but it would have been an interesting dynamic to have a friend Barbara have a friend who is well his, his dad's new wife her, her, sorry her dad's new wife who's also a cop and that would have been an interesting dynamic to see like you know here's another woman who's in law enforcement who has a different perspective that um maybe they just didn't take enough advantage of that character of sarah essen and but you know jim and sarah had their issues like when she took over a commissioner that their marriage was very tense and the whole batman thing mm-hmm. so maybe it was just they didn't want to compound the yeah the relationship uh and you know barbara is very much a uh daddy's girl so i think that's her primary go-to but it would be interesting to see them uh, you know i wonder what it would be like go out for for tea and little yeah. sandwiches uh yes. just hang out like that but yeah that would be interesting especially if sarah ever found out that barbara was oracle because i think she probably has her own ideas of of what's going on i think she would have more of an issue than than jim would and there would probably be some contention there it'd be interesting yeah, yeah. it would have been interesting yeah yeah uh, as for the – do you have any thoughts about an eight- or nine-hour show? I think your show is fine at six. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm not – too much. Yeah, but here's the thing. Like he made references to things I had no idea what he was I, talking well, about. No so does. I just yeah. – yeah. So but I thought, I thought that I honestly enjoyed the show. I'm always going to give you crap for running time because that's you my job. But yeah. – um, and uh, but at the same time, like I thought that – it was, um, to quote Jerry Lee Lewis, all killer, no filler. So I would have not had gone to an eight-hour show for the sake of inserting a bunch of stuff that I would have been like, I don't know, I have no idea what's going on here. Oh, you know, like, yeah. it's just, you know, I mean, it's... Well, yeah, well, he is going... Spoiler again. Spoiler! That's what little Ben used to say who was on. Thanks for the spoiler! Uh, when he was interviewing people. Yeah, yeah. But anyways, he's going to be on... Uh, on Cataclysm with me, so maybe he can fill us in on the Magic Carp and uh, the Killer Bee, 
and a Magikarp is a Pokemon. It's like this little game, and like this little fish. Like you train this because it's, it's a carp. I'm sure, but it's like is what it is. But it, yeah, I bet he does. But it just flops around. It seems like the most useless thing ever. But I will tell you about the Andrea Beaumont bathroom incident. Now, who knows if this is true or not? But imagine this little kid who just turns 11 over San Diego Comic Con. So it's his birthday, and we're we're down at the hotel, and he is eating a nice little ice cream sundae for his birthday, and he uh, he 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 bemoans the fact that he's sad because he's got to go to the bathroom, but the ice cream is so good he doesn't want to leave it, but because he he says that apparently it's going to take him twenty minutes, so Josh <laughs> Josh tells him to just go. And I look over and I see this little kid running crazy, like like Napoleon Dynamite style, going down. So anyways, it really does take 20 minutes. I guess, you know, things happen. So apparently he comes back and he tells us this story that apparently he was sitting there, obviously for 20 minutes, that the motion detector light goes off. And so now he's on the toilet <laughs> in the dark. A man comes in, so now the motion detector light comes back on. He finishes up. The, the the kid, Ben, finishes up. And then this man, I guess he's standing at a urinal. I don't know. Ben, you've seen, uh, what is it called? Mass of the Phantasm? Yeah, um, okay. a while ago, but yeah. Yeah. Well, Ben apparently goes up to this guy and says, Your angel of death awaits you. And the man turns to him and says, that was the third weirdest thing that's ever happened to me. And, you know, I'm trying to figure out, like, I mean, was this guy in the urinal and he's, like, right next to him and talking to him? It was the strangest thing. What would you do if an 11-year-old came up to you and said, your angel of death awaits you? What would you do? Probably give him a very weird look and keep going. (laughs) Finish up. Okay, so anyway, th- that's just, you know, something that happened. But, Josh, when you're on, we can revisit the killer bee and the magic carp story because I'm sure that's something uh, you would like to do. But, yeah, I tr- you know, the anecdotes, sometimes I just have to weigh which ones are going to make an impact on the audience and which ones aren't. Normally the most inside jokes I do are with the songs because that's generally – they're fun songs, but people don't know what the context is. So I just try to keep people in the loop rather than push them out. Hey, my final email is from, uh, actually, it's, it's coming from Sing Sing. Uh, I don't know. I didn't know they had such technology, but it's from Prof Prof, who is currently <laughs> residing in Sing Sing. He's still there. I've offered to send him things, but he's not gotten back to me. He's um, he's working. Latveria is trying to get him back. Like, I see. There's an, yeah, there's, there's stuff with, from what I've been told, there's something involving the Latverian government and the state department that and it's being held up by a bunch of like red tape essentially like you know there's just a lot yeah there's just a lot of stuff going on and um hail doom well yeah i i guess if you uh if you feel like you want to support prof prof you can write to your local congressman try to get him out of sing sing by the way and and they they did like when he was first arrested they did they did have bond you know he he could have been released on bail but it was more than a quarter so, so his he, family he, didn't try to chip in there yeah no no it's just like you know they he told them you know if the if the bail's more than a quarter you know wow so okay 
Well, uh, so this is from Prof Prof. He says, Stella, I enjoyed your conversation in BTO 141 with Carolyn Coca. A great interview and a book I'm definitely going to check out. But I did have one area of potential disagreement. Professor Coca made the consistent case that for its nearly 80-year history, comic book publishing has been predominantly the domain of white males. But I think that oversimplifies a much more complex view of racial identity in the 1930s, 1940s, and beyond. Because the leading lights in the comics field would not have been considered white in terms of the privilege and position that designation conferred at the time and continues to confer. The majority of these men were in fact Jewish and far removed from the corridors of power in American society at the time. Looking back seven decades, yes, these men appear to have the skin tone that, oh, he says skin town. The skin tone that qualifies them as white, but they were not considered so by the powerful white establishment of the era. It's easy to assume that the demographic categories in use today are fixed and rigid, but they are not. I think it would surprise Martin Goodman, Stan Lee, Lieber, Jack Kirby, Jacob Kurtzberg, Will Eisner, Joe Schuster, Jerry Siegel, and the other Jewish men who were comic book pioneers to learn that anyone would have considered them elite members of the privileged class. Neither they nor the elite member of the privileged class would likely agree with that assertion. Great job in the interview, Stella. Fascinating stuff. Take care and keep up the good work. And as I did before, I forwarded that to Carolyn so that she could respond uh, from with her own words. And she says, this is an important point about how comics and Jews were viewed in the earlier period of superhero comics. Women worked on many books in the war years as well. However, by the time one enters the 60s and onward, it will be difficult to make the argument that the men named below were not privileged. Left-leaning and well-meaning in general, yes, but not prone to hiring people who didn't look like them and not prone to taking them seriously as characters in their pages. Yes, you can call out exceptions by name, but they are very, very small in number compared to the universe of writers, artists, letters, colorists, editors, and the universe of superhero characters. Fifty years later, these numbers are still very small. Do you have any thoughts on this? I think she makes a good point about the 60s and 70s, and I'm not... I don't want to come off as like that guy on Twitter trying to mansplain away a point because I'm not trying to. But I think that Alan has a really good point because the marginalization of Jewish people in this country, especially through the late 19th into the early 20th century, uh, you know, you know, uh, even even after that is something that needs to be acknowledged especially in our culture and our popular culture because of how and this is something when I used to when I used to teach Nilly Vaisal's night I used to talk mm-hmm. about the whole concept of systemic racism and you know how over in Europe anti-semitism didn't start with Adolf Hitler. And, and you know, so you look at how it is in this country and how it was easy to ignore events over in Europe in some regard. And, you know, and, and I, I'm rambling a little bit here, but like, you know, the, 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 the uh, Jewish people were marginalized to a, to a huge extent, you know, um, and in some cases discriminated against outright. And uh, yes, they are, they are more uh, white looking, et cetera. And she does make a point that as you go on there, there's kind of an establishment there that you know there, but but we as we've seen in recent um, months, anti-Semitism isn't exactly dead, and there's an entire part of our population 
that still holds to rhetoric and ideas that were pushing um, pushing Jews to the margins of professions and society in uh, in the early part of the 20th century, which included the entertainment industry. Mm. So, so I think yeah. I think both of them have a good point. Yeah, I guess when I was you know thinking about it, I guess I I never really looked at their religion Jewishness. Yeah, or, you know I sort of only saw them as men, mm-hmm. um, which I guess in a way that's degrading too because I took a piece of them that makes them special. You know, because in that case you're like, well, look at all these men. You know, just in general, and and you're not really seeing too many others in there. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, something to consider. I I don't have anything to respond because, you know what? You this isn't like a um, th- this could be a big question for something else, and we I guess we can talk about it in March almost um, when we do March. Mm-hmm. But I just don't understand why people don't like Jews. I don't get it. Um, and I I I, I, I mean, well, it, well, it goes back like millennia, centuries in Europe of anti-Semitism and you know that Alan and Alan would be a great, this, this would be a great darkness. To light. Yeah, it would be a great darkness to light because yeah. there's, um, and, and I, I'd have to do, I don't want to go too far down the road because I would have to actually read up on it. Yeah. But something to remember is that it's only been within the last 20 years that the Pope finally turned around and said, you know what? The Jews didn't kill Christ. So Mm. things like that. And at the root of there, there's a lot, there's a deep run root of something that has been for centuries that started in Europe and, and, and people, you know, came over, uh, came over here to this country, but I got to tell you, and it also depends on the, um, it also depends on on where you are in the country too, because mm. I got you know I grew up in I grew up in Long Island. Um, there's you know there's Italians and Irish and Jews and yeah. Polish and there's just so many people. So um, and and I know it's a silly thing to say. Oh, you know, some of my best friends are Jewish, but one of my best friends is Jewish. So you know I I grew up sure. around Jewish people all the time, and I came down here, and I was teaching in a in a school district that was partially suburban but also very rural very rednecky white mm. um, parts of it and and uh, varying degrees of evangelical Christianity and sex like Jehovah's Witnesses and things and it was one of the first times in many years I'd heard somebody use the word Jew as an insult Yeah, and it I remember that it was like eight or nine years ago it just shocked me I was like wait what and, and you know, so just and ha- like I said, having to taught the same book for like so many years, just kind of looking into those roots. But uh, but yeah, well, that's that. This is something we probably could table for our discussion about March, <laughs> which yeah. will be the um, October episode of Required Reading, which you that's should true, all yeah. check out. Little pimpage, yeah, yeah, that's... coming out this month is uh, one of my favorite books, near and dear to my heart, Ella Minow. By Mark Dunn, so you can check that. That comes out. Uh, well, it depends on when this comes out, but next week. So there you go. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. If, yeah. If that'll be out on Tuesday, so I'm assuming this is coming out after. The... Yeah, I guess. Okay, so, yeah, so by so the time come, it'll might be, be in the. <laughs> yeah, might be airing the same day. Who knows? Uh, yeah, no, it's just ironic that you know they go from God's chosen people to all of a sudden 
people don't like them. I just don't get it. But yeah, certainly something, uh, I'm sure other people have thoughts on that and we can, yeah, table it for something else. I also find it, I just, just, this is a total comics history in general thing. I was, um, I was going through some books that I want to get, you know, signed for, uh, Baltimore and, uh, thinking back to Jack Kirby and Stan Lee and Siegel and Schuster and, and all of the golden and silver age men and, and, and the women who were working the amount of work that they produced, the quantity of work they produced is staggering. Like if you consider like how consistently a lot of them were churning out story month after month after month after month after month and you have comic creators today who can't finish a storyline you know and it's just like I think of like how month after month they were churning out Superman and Batman and into the 60s Fantastic Four and Spider-Man and etc and you're just like Mm -hmm. And nowadays it's like, oh, wait, you know, how many years has it been since the last issue of this comic book? And like I, so I've always been impressed by – even if I don't like the stuff here and there from the Golden and Silver Age, I just don't find it very interesting. I've always been impressed by just how that industry just survived on its ability to just keep creating. Mm. So. Absolutely. Well, we're going to take a short break. But when we come back, we're going to – review our final two books, Batgirl and the Birds of Prey number 13 and Batgirl number 66 slash 14. Now, before I introduce my Zias's radio hour, I wanted to ask you, Tom, are you team grape or team raisin? You know the answer to this. Well, the raisins people need to know are amazing. Everything. Raisins ruin everything. It's just no, no. We we do not do raisins or if you're watching the British baking show Sultanas, no, 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 mm. no. Okay, so you, you heard it here first. He is Team Raisin. We'll see if we can get other people to be on this. Or wait, <laughs> sorry. Actually, that was like a complete accident. <laughs> that was a slip. Um, he is Team Grape. But we'll see if we can gather other people to uh, to take him down with pitchforks. And you know why I like grapes more than raisins, too? Because mm-hmm. the end result of grapes... Is a raisin. Uh, no. Yes? Well, there's jams. There's jellies. You can make a jam and a jelly from a raisin. There's wonderful, wonderful wine. What about raisin bread? Uh, what about uh, no. carrot cake? Uh, my wife makes amazing carrot cake, and she does not put raisins in carrot cake. What about that little lady on the front of the little box that you send raisins to school with your kid? I don't send raisins to school with my kid. You're a bad father. Yeah, I know. Call Child Protective Services. <laughs> I will. The other thing I want to say before this is that, you know, when you say mansplain, mm-hmm. really, I think when you do it, it should be called pandasplain. And so now we will take our break. Uh, but it is Zias' radio. I spare leaving the podcast. <laughs> I spare the best one in that show. Uh, <laughs> Just watching feature- that today. <laughs> I know. Featuring O Woman, O Man by London Grammar. I can see that you're giving up. It should not mean that much to me. And I don't know where the rest goes. But everybody 
Nobody's been telling me no But I'll always have a thing for you I'd move the earth But nothing made you want me better There is nothing I can do To steal the moon But nothing made you want me You're giving up So tell me It should not mean this much to me And I don't know where the rest goes Everybody's been telling me no
Okay, well, welcome back. We're going to tackle these two pieces. Uh, I have Tom at a bit of a disadvantage, at least with background the Birds of Prey, since it was the third arc, but I tried to give him some context. And actually, with Batgirl, it is the first issue in this story, so we're, we're at a good place here. So here we go. And thank you, Tom, for staying on, because normally my guests beg off on this half, so I appreciate you being here. Hey, welcome. See, I can be nice. So, this is Batgirl and the Birds of Prey number 13, Source Code Part 3, Debugged. Writers Julie Benson and Shauna Benson, artists Rohe Antonio and Breno Tamura, and colorist Alan Pasolacqua and Chris Sotomayor. Batgirl, Catwoman, Gus, and Calculator, <laughs> oh my, are crawling through the ventilation system at TerraCare as Huntress and the CEO hang from some vines while Ivy catches everyone up on why she targeted the company in the first place. Huntress tries to tell Ivy that revenge is not the road she wants to go down, hello, but Ivy says she isn't the one out for revenge. She then tells of honey shortages in several countries caused by a fertilizer produced by TerraCare, which accelerated crop growth but killed the bees. She infiltrated the company to study the formula, but hired Catwoman to steal the vial. The death of the bees was already starting to impact the ecosystem. As millions of killer bees enter TerraCare, these are the ones out for revenge, Hunters convinces the better side of Ivy to protect Calculator's family. The other team... Members make their way to the same room, and Batgirl tells Ivy to let them handle Benedict, who is the CEO. Some of the remaining people in the building are ushered into a vault as the birds fight off goons and the bees at the same time until Ivy drinks the contents of the vial, which changes her pheromones enough to control the bees and send them away. I'm a little bit iffy on that. Calculator's family is appreciative. Benedict is taken into custody. Catwoman sneaks some jewels as a finder fee. You go, Catwoman. And the birds realize that Gus is missing. It seems Gus has left the team, unable to be the hero even in his own story. Batgirl quickly realizes that Calculator may go after Gus, which is accurate, since Calculator wants to know who tipped off Benedict. He believes it was someone from within the company. Oracle contacts Calculator and tells him to let Gus go. While at first Calculator believes it's a trick, he quickly realizes that it's the real Oracle, and she is back, and he is ready to get his revenge. Later, Dinah, Huntress, Selina, and Pamela are eating at Batburger when they get a mission from Barbara, who is driving the mission as Oracle, for old time's sake. Next, Barbara Gordon is Oracle. Na-na-na! Uh, so as a potential first-time reader of this book, what were your thoughts on uh, the team and, and how they work together and the overall story? I thought it was written uh, very well. I liked it seemed that each of the people on the team, each of the members of the team had a distinct character. Now I can't I can't attest to whether or not they were written in character as to as to like how they should be acting like you know does Black Canary really talk like this does Barbara really talk sure. like this etc. But 
it seemed like they weren't writing them generically or stock because like one of those things that you and I have both seen, we've, we've both read our fair share of team books. Mm-hmm. And um, there are times when a writer just does not handle, have a handle on a team and they um, either will spend too much time with one or two characters all the time because those are their favorites or they, and, and write the rest of everybody else kind of flat. Or just everybody seems to not even have their own voice. It's just it's clearly the writer's voice speaking through them. I didn't get that here. I felt that they all and they all served they all served a purpose and they all had like their own little bit here. And it was a really um and and you had given me the issue before this, so I had a little bit of a lead in. Mm-hmm. But um, I was pretty tightly written. I, I enjoyed it as far as writing. The art the art's fun. It 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 does still have a it has a little bit of the Burnside flavor to it yeah which i really enjoy i see i love the burnside run i will say that sometimes the facial expression is the same facial expression no matter what the woman is i can see that. you know there's like the same mouth the same nose Mm -hmm. the same eyes um but the skin tone might be different sure i will say i liked the fact that they showed poison ivy as human because sometimes they give poison ivy. She's got like green skin, and yeah. there's some there's more monster esque qualities about her. And they showed her actually being like the scientist that she actually is right. in a couple of flashbacks and stuff like that. And it, she was not as much as some like weird ivy monster as and more of a, of a scientist. And, and like I liked that how the Bensons wrote her intelligently and like you know just and allowed that intelligence and the her role as a scientist to shine through. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's just seeing that I really wish somebody would do Harley Quinn. Mm. Like I know she's too far gone, but wasn't she a psychologist? Yeah. So wouldn't there be like a great going sane type of thing? Maybe there was because I don't read any Harley Quinn. But like, wouldn't there be a great thing like where she just you see the the doctor at some point? But I don't know if that's possible with a character like that. Yeah, so. I guess it comes down to whether you think that the Ditz is an actor. It's it's actually her. Yeah, but I like what they did with Ivy here. I thought the just the scenes of her like you know going and researching and talking to the scientists and like yeah. dressing normal clothes. I just I appreciated that because yeah. you don't get that a lot in Ivy stories. It actually reminded me of the Suicide Squad issues. Yeah, where well, she, yep, she yep. wasn't really in costume a lot. So yeah, sometimes she's depicted as like being. A member of the green so like she literally which i guess she always is but just like her body is like the living green as well mm-hmm. uh, which was with the, when the new 52 began that's how she was depicted here i like especially on the cover i like sort of the tattoos that she has i noticed that they're not there sometimes and they are later so i think maybe it depends on if she's using her powers that the vine sort of design on her arms and her legs will pop up I'm not too sure, but I thought that was a nice design. I really like it on the cover, and I like when it pops up in the issue. I was happy. So this is the third of three in this particular arc. I was happy that the missing pieces were revealed because you had no idea what the vial was or you know what Poison Ivy was up to or why Terra Care was not on the up and up, but we were actually answered with all those questions. I think the only thing that is con- still dangling is the who is the mole and who set Calculator up. I'm not really sure when or how that's going to be revealed, but I think it has to be revealed with a calculator-focused story. And I think maybe there are some threads that are dangling on purpose right now because calculator, of course, is out for blood. This issue also ends with 
potentially a new status quo. You've got a new team dynamic. The poser, as I'll call him, the poser Oracle is gone, and you've got Babs back at Mission Conductor or Mission Control as Oracle. And then, of course, Calculator's showing his villainous side and already setting his sights on Oracle. So it really felt, it ended on a very high note, like a classic Birds of Prey story. One person, I do want to talk about the bees. What do you think about them? But I will say that Virgil, my, my, my beloved Virgil, would have been a fan of this particular issue because of the bees. Uh, he, he, he enjoyed them. He liked to write about them with the Georgics, like how to keep bees and things like that. But what did you think about this? This was something that uh, obviously comics stretch of the imagination. Ivy, she's got power, stretch of the imagination. But with the bees, uh, some questions that maybe you can answer. Did you think this was reasonable because the bees suddenly knew where to go in the first place, to go to TerraCare? And then Ivy drinks this chemical and it's able to impact the bees. I was a little confused there because I thought the chemical sped up plant growth, not necessarily, and it had bad effects on the on the bees. So with the bees coming in, what, what did you think? Was this reasonable? Have any answers to my questions? Was it supposed to be like a pheromone or something? Yeah, well, yeah, she was going to use it with her pheromone to all of a sudden control the bees. But I wasn't really sure how that chemical would work to do that if the chemical is supposed to impact the plants rather. And destroy the bees. So I, I, I don't know. Or is it like? Because I know her particular makeup physiology is that she's right. got this plant power. So is it yes. the specific combination of that serum and or that whatever's in that vial and yeah. her her own physiology? Like this wouldn't work if. If if the villain was Deathstroke and he swallowed it, it wouldn't have done anything. So is right. it specifically yeah. her? If it's it specifically be, yeah. her, I think that's how you can no prize it. Okay. To to borrow a phrase from another company, but sure. um, but yeah, you're right. It's kind of it's kind of convenient for the plot that suddenly she's like insect woman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I said, it works for the plot. Because yeah. it and it comes so late in the it comes on page uh, yeah it comes it comes later in, in, in toward the end of the story so it's like right. one of those things where you I think I let it go because it was so late in the story and it was like well you know if you can explain it away by saying well maybe it's her physiology interacting with whatever she drank then all right I'll let I'll let it go but yeah you're right yeah. it's a, it doesn't really seem to hold up completely or it just seems a little contrived yeah. What do you think Benedict can be charged for? The CEO. Um, Is it some sort of eco-terrorism since he that chemical was destroying the bees? Under the current EPA, no. Um, okay. Rachel Carson, where are you? Under. Uh, the, oh man, Silent Spring. Uh, <laughs> no, oh, I knew you would get the reference. Yeah, and my sister said. and my sister, my sister being an environmental scientist herself. Under most sane people, yeah, this you know what this is. This is if they can't be charged with anything, um, if they can't be charged for anything criminal, mm-hmm. and let's just assume that the evil CEO of this company has found the loopholes he needs. I could imagine this. This could be a lawsuit. Okay. You know, civil lawsuit. Yeah. In regards to the scene at Bat Burger, <laughs> do you think everyone knows everyone's secret identity? Yeah. Well, um, on the last page. Yeah. 
Helena at least knows. Well, and if she's in their ear, yeah, um, they at least know that Batgirl is Oracle. Yeah, because she says, "Is Batgirl going to join us?" And Barbara says, "I think I'll drive from here this time. You know, just for old times' sake." Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just don't. You know, the Dinah and Helena. I think I can understand that because they've been working together, and I think they went through that trust thing. Mm-hmm. But to have Ivy and Oracle. I'm sorry, Ivy Catwoman. and Catwoman, no. I have a bit of an issue with that. You know, Babs was secretive. Even in the New 52 uh, incarnation of the bird, she was saying that she wasn't going to give up her ID when she was on that team. And whenever Oracle begrudgingly worked with Catwoman in the 90s, she they never knew who each other was. So I am a little, I just wonder about this. Mm-hmm. It seems like, yes, they know, but should they know Barbara Gordon's identity? That's a good point. I don't think that Catwoman and Poison Ivy should. Yeah. I don't care if Catwoman knows Batman's. I mean, obviously, I don't care. uh, Okay. I don't care if Catwoman knows Batman's, and that's like the justification for knowing Batgirl, because it's like, you know, no, no. I mean, you know, Mm. these are are people who should be able to operate with some sort of independence of one another, just because you know Bruce is Batman doesn't give you license to know everybody else mm-hmm. you know that's what i meant but yeah i i i don't think that you know with with helena and dinah it makes sense yeah but Catwoman and poison ivy i, I don't yeah i, I don't agree with that. yeah because you can't necessarily trust them through yeah. and through and there's a bit of a conflict because if if this were true before this mission that Catwoman knew Batgirl's identity, then Batgirl could have reached out to Catwoman on her own, but instead she used Batman to reach out to Catwoman mm-hmm. to set up the whole mission. So that's that's a little bit weird. But yeah, I yeah, I, I just don't think. I think Barbara Gordon's pretty smart and she only reveals her identity to certain people. Yeah. I I will say that Yeah. <laughs> On that last panel, on the last page, the Poison Ivy and Oracle have a very similar, like, the the facial differences. They the yeah, same. they look really yeah. the same. Well, redheads, you know, yeah. they all look the same. Yeah. Uh, which is funny because you and I both found, you texted me it, uh, <laughs> the art, there was a coloring mistake because he said, who's the other redhead? But on page 12, you'll see somebody with glasses. And I think this is actually supposed to be Dinah because that was her, her getup. Yes, I, I think so. And uh, but she's colored with red hair, so it it was yes a coloring issue, and you can tell. Could you tell? I could that there was the change in artists when it happened. I'm looking through it now, and it comes in. I think it's like right at the end. Yeah. Like page um, eighteen or nineteen or so. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's like eighteen or nineteen because of the way. The, the the faces really are much different. Yeah. Uh, the change in artist at the end isn't bad. It's not a terrible, um, terrible change in artist. It, it, they're still drawn very well. But yes, I see. I see where it is. Yeah. I think that's all I have to say about it. I uh, I'm looking forward to how Barbara Gordon, if she does, she balances Batgirl and Oracle in that lifestyle. 
I was happy Gus left. I, I never really was on board with that character or had any emotional connection with him. But it seemed like such a strange time to do it. I mean, he didn't even wait till the end of the mission. He's just like, deuces, and then, you know, and left, and yeah. But it is nice to see that he's home again because he was struggling with that and, and leaving his mom and things like that. So any any final thoughts for you on this issue? Much like the JLA stuff, I found this very fun. That's good. And I like I like the team dynamic that's going on there, and and I hope that I mean I might pick up a couple Ooh. down the road. I don't know, but okay. um, if, if money permitting, uh, sure. but uh, but it is um, it's worth a try. It's worth it's worth taking a look at. So yeah. they're doing it. The the Benson sisters are doing a very good job. Absolutely. Out of ten birds, what would you give this? I give it an eight. Okay, I'm going to give it an 8.5, which I think rounded out all of my issues. I think they were all 8.5. Yeah, so it'll be good. We've got new team dynamics. We've got Batgirl as Oracle now and maybe the calculator in Evil Calculator. So should be fun to see what happens next issue. Mm-hmm. We're now on to another one, which this is good because we've got some Nightwing and Batgirl here. This is Batgirl 66, a.k.a. Batgirl 14. Summer of Lies, Part 1. Writer Hope Larson, pencils Chris Wildgoose, inks Jose Marzan Jr., and colorist Matt Lopez. Batgirl arrives at a place sent to her via text that says, quote, the source of the mischief, end quote. Once there, she notices that she's not alone, and Nightwing also got the message. They quickly realize it's a trap and are attacked by a set of twins in red harlequin or court jester outfits. They say that the source of the mischief is Nightwing and Batgirl, and that her blood is on their hands shortly before they jump off of the roof. Down at the scene of their dead bodies, Batgirl and Nightwing discuss how they how those two people looked like some person named Ainsley, and figure the Mad Hatter would be the best person to ask. Questions? Yes, I have many. Flashback. Gotham County High School. Babs is comparing Gotham to Chicago and trying to find her classes. She meets the sub for the Intro to Computer Science class, who happens to look like a student. Yikes, that's what happens to me all the time. And Babs talks to her about a project she has been conducting, redefining the geography of the U.S. (laughs) This is kind of funny. Using sale data from snack food items. The substitute is impressed, especially since finding that information obviously required some hacking. Later, Babs is dressed as Batgirl and is overlooking the football field in the afternoon when Robin shows up. He clearly knows a great deal about Barbara and crosses the line, which causes her to swing off. Now, present day, the mad haberdashery. Nightwing and Batgirl run into Pork Pie and Stetson in their search for Mad Hatter. While subduing them, Nightwing brings Batgirl up to speed on his personal life, i.e. the fact that he and Sean are no longer dating. After a tip from Stetson, that was happening in Nightwing, by the way. After a tip from Stetson, they look at Hatter's files and find the twins. Batgirl jumps to conclusions and Nightwing tries to comfort her regarding past mistakes. Flashback. 
Babs gets a job at the Chive Garden. Might be like an Olive Garden. What do you think? Probably. And her <laughs> and her sub Ainsley also works there. Ainsley shows Babs the ropes and later offers her an unpaid internship to help her code. At home, Jim Gordon freaks out because Babs didn't notify him as to the job and staying out late. She gets sent to her room, but she then sneaks out, as any teenager does, as Batgirl and runs into Robin again. He apologizes, and they go on a mission together. Now, present day. Gotham General Hospital, Nightwing, and Batgirl find Mad Hatter, who has already been beaten up pretty badly. He wakes up in a panic and says the Red Queen is coming. Speaking of, there's the Red Queen now, watching them on a CCTV. While she could beat them now, losing will hurt so much more if they think they have a chance to win. Next, a tea party. I have a question for you. What is the proper balance between information and mystery? If it's a mystery story, I guess you want only so much to keep you guessing, Okay. But enough to keep you, you know, enough to inform you so that when the mystery is solved, there's no bit of information like where the heck did that come from? Sure. Case in point, I referenced it earlier because Michael and Andrew had talked about it. The ending of Identity Crisis. Oh, dear. like, no, no, no. It's I'm not going to spoil it, but <laughs> I remember it, Michael and Andrew talking about this. And I remember the, the way they phrased it was exactly how I read the last issue. Of, and there were big reveal of the, the villain of identity crisis or, you know, who, who the, who done it part of identity sure. crisis. And the words out of my mouth were, was where did this come from? You don't want that. You want enough information so that when that happens, you can go back and be like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I see how you did it. But you, even with their explanation when they were showing the person doing the different stuff, I felt no, I felt it logically made sense. Like, you know, her explanation made sense and everything. But like I I kept going back and it just it didn't like I was like, but it seemed to it's it just still seems to kind of come out of nowhere that like, you know, this is what happened. This is who it was. Mm-hmm. And you're like, OK, but there was nothing to even put a hint or suggest. And for somebody who is completely inept, by the way. In terms of, you know, like, oh, I had to do this and I, I screwed this up and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you know, I don't know. I just – that's all thing. So I, I wouldn't want like too much information to like give the whole thing away because I'm not stupid, you know, or like because the writer thinks I'm too stupid to know. But at the same time, I, you, you, can't, you can't come up with a reveal on the last part of a, of a storyline like something like this and be – and be all like, hey, look, it was this person all along. And you're like, where the heck did that come from? You know, because you never really even seeded anything and you're just trying to get out of a story. And if I'm being honest, I've read Hush and I've seen the thing where the person you've never heard of before in that person's life suddenly shows up and there's a mysterious villain. And, oh, gee, I wonder who it is. So you don't like that either? I think it's cheap. Okay. Well, it's used a lot, you know. I know, and that's why I think it's cheap because it's been—it's okay. a cliche. This is. Cl- well, I don't. Do you think Hush was a cliche when it first came out? Yeah, I—I I, I didn't read Hush when it first came out. I read it in trade, and I, I read it, and I didn't—you know—I I knew a little bit about it here and there, and it's certainly, um, you know, pretty to look at. But when push comes to shove, there's better Jeff Loeb stuff out there, and when push comes to shove, like I knew Thomas was Hush, like. Pretty early on, I don't know. It was it was just one of those things where like, well, duh, 
this is, I mean, like, if the Red Queen is not Ainsley, I will give Hope Larson a little bit of credit. Okay. Like, this is clearly Ainsley. Looking at this as the first part of a story, I'm like, how how is this not Ainsley? This character who I don't think, I mean, granted, I haven't been reading Batgirl since the Burnside run ended or or whatever issue one of this. I, I have I have two issues of the Hope Larson run, and then I dropped it after no, issue two, yeah. Uh, I haven't, so I haven't been reading it in a while, but I've never heard, and I, I haven't listened to your show. I've never heard a character named Ainsley mentioned, so I'm assuming she's a brand new character no. from yeah. their past who's never been mentioned before. Oh my god! Absolutely. Uh, so, d- did this find that balance? This issue between inf- but here's the thing: I don't know because the characterization of this issue is so bad. I can't tell you i'm sorry that's so mean to say but like i don't know if there's information or mystery in here because i'm just looking at like why is robin being such a his name yeah you know like and and just i don't know i just yeah i couldn't get past that so okay i felt like maybe i was scratching my head frankly um which isn't the first time but You've got Ainsley, something happened, and the Mad Hatter is involved. That's literally all you're given. Mm-hmm. So I guess – I mean I, I I don't know. I wish I could follow it a little bit more. I mean I think there's a way to have mystery, you know, enough information mm-hmm. that you're able to follow the story. But, you know, there's a mystery going on. And it's just, it's just the references that w- – basically what confuses me is – Dick and Babs, you know, their inside knowledge and saying, oh, that thing that happened that time. It's like, I know what you did last summer. Oh, we, you know, we don't talk about that. So that that it was just hard, hard sometimes to read. I have an issue. We're going to get with back to Dick and Babs because mm-hmm. I'm probably with you, quite honestly. But I've got some issues with the continuity. I, let me know what you think. I guess I'll, I'll take point on this because it's more back row continuity that I have issue here. Okay. But it seems like she just moved there, and it's her first day of classes. Do you agree or disagree? That is the feeling that I got. This is this is okay. new. This is new girl, first yes. day of school, new nerdy okay. girl with the popular yep. kids, and it's it, she might as well be Caddy from. Um, oh, God. <laughs> Mean Girls. Mean Girls. Does yeah. it not? Oh, does man. it not? Sure, sure. Yeah, absolutely. So then. Why is she Batgirl already? It almost assumes that she was Batgirl in Chicago. Good point. Because in Batgirl, is wasn't there an origin issue like Zero or something where they established that she, much like in the classic origin, she was in Gotham when she became Batgirl? Right. While, you know, there are the two different origins, right? One where, of course, she's sort of poking fun at her father's relationship with Batman or the other one where she's enamored with Batman. But in either case, you have to be in the same vicinity of Batman. Yeah, Batman's not. So this is a bit of an issue. I'm not sure about that. And then when she's talking with Dick that first time, she asked, or well, Robin, she was saying, you know, why didn't Batman call on her? And I'm just thinking, why would he? You're, you're not even established. So this whole thing, like her already being established on the first day of school, I've got a major problem with. I don't think it works. I think it's very out of continuity. Yeah. And I know that people sometimes, like, people get a bad rap for saying, you know, what's in continuity, you know, that kind of stuff, like being too focused on it. But this seems like a really bad mishandling. 
this is like a blatant, like, what's going on right now? So that's why I'm confused. It had it been established that these two characters had a relationship before, like she's been going on and this is not the first time that they met each other, maybe it would have been a little bit better. Yeah. So maybe the inconsistency is not in the Batman, Batgirl and Robin encounter, but it's in the first, it's in the, they could have, they could have put a line of thought or dialogue into the school scene to establish that she's fairly new. But even then, if it was only a few weeks or a couple of months, like you've only been there a couple of months now, you're Batgirl. Like, you know, yeah, Yeah. there's, you're right. It's, it's for the sake of story. She's doing this to build whatever past that she's got with Robin, by the way, I don't know if it's because it's supposed to be kind of an amateurish look for her, but I don't like the, I don't like her old bat, bat girl look. I wish she, I wish she was wearing a, a cowl. I, cause I don't think that yeah. she, I just don't think she'd it's be, more, it's like a misfit. Feel. Yeah. It's like, why would you're in broad daylight, red haired girl. It just, Redhead girl. Well, I don't even know why she's on the roof of a. Uh, why is she looking at a football? Yeah, game? it's just what, something else he could be doing. Well, even if she is, why is she dressed <laughs> as Batgirl? And yeah, it's just. It, yeah, that doesn't make much sense know. either. Yeah, I think uh, another reason why, or another point of evidence, is the fact that Jim Gordon does freak out. He's like, "This is not like Chicago," and I think he would have been over that if it had been a couple months. Mm-hmm. But it's clear that they've not been there so long. So I think it's the fact that you've got Barbara Gordon's past. Like, if you want to choose to say that Barbara Gordon just arrived in Gotham, that's one thing. But to say that, you know, she's also Batgirl, that's that's a completely different thing. But let's get into another thing that I had an issue with, and, and I can tell by your grumble grumble, that you may have as well. And it's the interactions between Dick and Babs. Both uh, mainly, for me, I thought the flashbacks were terrible. Uh-huh. But um, even some of the uh, the present day ones were a little weird as well. Uh, so you go first. You take this. All right. I I will be honest, <laughs> and I have not read Grayson. Uh, I Nightwing. have not read a single Nightwing comic since like <sighs> Nightwing Zero, or right after, like the early into the New Fifty Two. So when he saw the red, yeah, costume. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so, um, so I, I, re- oh, I read one, ep- I read one issue of Grayson because I covered it on an episode of uh, my eighty years of DC Comics thing uh, a couple of years ago. But so I don't know if this is consistent or not with the current character of Nightwing, and I honestly don't know their history. I mean, I know their history in terms, of, but I don't know, like, do they have the same romantic history that they had? flirtation i don't think ever like it's clear they care about each other but i don't think they ever had a serious relationship i don't know he's just he's even even in the present day he's kind of condescending in a sense Mm. you know and uh yeah he almost it's almost like it's almost like early early tim and steph where he was like go go home all the time (laughs) Yeah, and I just I don't know. It just it it doesn't it doesn't really work for me. I'm looking at page eleven. But by the way, on page eleven, why does uh, Barbara have the angry, glowing red eyes of anger? Uh, more like <laughs> angry red, glowing eyes of red. Yes, yeah. that's interesting. Um, I don't know. It, it's more like heinous, heinous. Looking. Yeah, that's that's a Mike Bailey. Uh, supposed to be Superman joke? Oh, by the way, okay. <laughs> I okay. <laughs> Thanks for being redundant, Michael Bailey. 
Uh, I guess it's to be intimidating and try to get. I don't know. It's just again, it's pork pie. Yeah, pork pie. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just it's like I said. It just seems that if 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 she's setting them up to be, are they going to hook up at some point? Is she setting that up to be? Oh, they fight and they're they're catty at each other, but they're gonna you know that's sort of like typical like it's a sitcom in the eighties or something. Sure. I I don't know. I don't know if that's. I'm sorry. I'm not being very uh, eloquent here. I just I I don't I don't know. I don't know what I don't know know what her intention is. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I when the solicitations came out for this, I just basically sighed and said, well, this is going to be one, one of those things where basically they're going to talk about it and then decide that they can't be together and it's going to be a bunch of nothing. So that's what I was thinking was going to happen. So, I mean, there's purposeful conflict and, uh, you know, things are being – there's a lot of information being dumped like, oh, I don't have a girlfriend anymore. And like that little shipper moment of the panel where he's like touching her hair. But – I think in the end, I, I imagine nothing's going to happen. You know, with the backflash or flashbacks, at times they were fun, but at times I think there was too much of an attempt to make Dick a know-it-all mm-hmm. and purposefully alienate Babs. Like, I don't really know why he's dropping all this information. Like, he had all of that information on her and was just basically saying, I don't know, what he was trying to yeah. do. And then later on it's turned back on Babs. Like, it's her fault for the judgment that she made on him. Which I thought was annoying. Yeah, I just and this whole thing with this person, something happened with Ainsley years ago, and they're gonna try to set that up. It's just I don't know. It's it's I feel like it's a lot of twisting around of things just to fit the story she wants to tell. Yeah, I will say some of their detective stuff is pretty good. They work well together as a team professionally. And I yeah. think that comes off. If I'm going to compliment yeah. something in the writing, that comes off really, really well. The fa- I'm, I'm right now. I'm looking at one of the, the page where uh, I think it's page uh, twenty, uh, where you know where they wait. They wake up the Mad Hatter. So that scene was done very well. Kind of beating up this like C list villain, and and some of those things work really, really well. But like I said, it's just. You got to give me more than this if you're gonna if you're gonna bring me back into a title that I dumped like two issues in because I was like, why is she in Asia and with this guy and what's going on here? Yeah, yeah. I just I I couldn't. I tried to give it six months and I was like, no, I have other things I need to to buy. Yeah. So you know, there. I think I don't want to see Batgirl go away. Right. Um, I think that I don't want to see the a fun. Batgirl comic to go away, and this isn't particularly fun, but I want to see like a fun Batgirl comic. I think Batgirl's one of those comics that appeals to a very wide audience, and Batgirl's like part of the DC superhero girls at the moment, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, yep. so what the thing that the thing that DC still needs is to hit that middle ground, that ground between the all ages stuff of the DC superhero girls and the Altbar, the Balthadar and Franco stuff, and mm-hmm, Scooby Doo mm-hmm. team up and all that, and gritty. Snyder Capullo Batman, you know, that that my 10 year old will not be reading until he's old enough. Where's the mid range? And like and not that Batgirl could be that book, but Batgirl has the potential to be enough of that, you know, that that it's a good jumping on point to keep fans, you know, that to keep them beyond the point where they age out Mm because boys and girls 
not all of them stick with these properties in comic book form. A lot of them or toy form, they age out of it. And that's DC's problem. They don't know how to keep, they don't know how to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. The Batgirl could have been a really good title for that. Not that you have to, not that you have to water it down, but the art was fun. The, the stories, that, that whole Burnside run, like I said, I really liked it. And I've, I've seen what you've been put through. And that I'm reading it right here. I'm like, I just, it's not. Yeah. yeah. The disappointment really for me is that we're coming off of two one shots that I really enjoyed. I thought they were really solid. And it's just, you know, adding, I guess, another main character in the mix and sort of confusing some history. And we've lost a little bit. And, you know, with Nightwing, I think it should be easy. It should be easy to write these two together, but it just seems like there's too much tension. The shipper moments are super weird, and uh, and and I don't think why do we have to insert you know conflict into their past? Why does there need to be that? I don't I don't know if that's necessary. Well, like I said, I don't know how much I don't know how much had been established and how much hadn't been established. If this was the old fifty two, the old and Barbara had become Batgirl again, but all the history between him and her and him and Corey and her and Jace, Jason Bard. Like if all those past relationships and things were there, then some of this would have made a little more sense. But I don't. But do you realize? Do you think that they did something bad? Because the shadow of the whole thing is that they did something that they regret. Possibly. They killed the man with the hook. I don't know. Yeah. I know what you did last summer. I know. I enjoyed that film, actually. I've seen um, that movie in like 20 years. <laughs> I Once we get into October, I'll be like re-watching all these things when they come on AMC and mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, yeah, it just, you know, in the current Batman titles, they, they seem to want to give Batman, like Batman did something he regrets and he doesn't want people to find out about. And so it seems like we're going that way. So I've been real negative on it, and, but I will say there are some things that I liked about it. I did like the interactions between Ainsley and Babs. I think that they're really compatible. They've got good chemistry. They seem like equals, and, and I like how they were written together. I thought it was funny to see Jim acting like a father, acting up the way he is. And, and, you know, are you okay? Yeah, I'm there? sorry. And we're almost done. That's okay. And that basically how someone would act if they were in a new town, especially if it were... Gotham and his wife had just left him and he's being well with Baz, which may be a really new thing for him. Yeah. And of course I'm I'm happy to see the the return of Chris Wildgoose. I really liked the art, especially during the haberdashery. It's just very psychedelic and everything. Yeah, points on the art. I did enjoy the yeah, art. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh so final thoughts and overall grade out of ten. The art makes this it's very nice to look at. The art, I I didn't compliment the art enough, and and I'm I, I it was it was really really good art. The story, I'm 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 not going to buy the next issue. I'll just listen to your show. Sure. If the Red Queen turns out to be somebody other than who I think it is, maybe I'll go back and read the entire thing just to <laughs> see where I was wrong. Uh-huh. Uh, but if I'm gonna, yeah, do you want me to rate this? Yeah. Out of uh, what is it? Four out of uh, uh, bats. I'm gonna give it a yeah, four. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna give it a four. Whoa! Wow. Yeah. So I was leaning four on the story. Actually, let's give it a five. Four on the story, but I gotta I gotta give it another point for the for the artwork. For the art. Okay. I'm gonna bump you up a little bit and say six point five out of ten. But it does take a big dive. It's just that continuity, man. And then just trying to find a balance, I think, but 
between Dick and Babs and their interactions. So I hope it gets better. I think it's three issues. It's a three-issue arc, mm-hmm. so I guess we'll see. Okay, well, now over to Chris for his Batman 66 review. Ah, that's like finding out you still have a bit on your favorite podcast. Thank you very much, Stella. Hello, Batfans. Welcome once again to the Batman 66 review segment. Thank you very much for downloading. And as always, thank you for not fast-forwarding. I'm Chris, and I'm very glad to be with you. Wow, where did the summer go? Listeners, I hope you had a nice summer. This one just got away from me. So much I wanted to do, but just didn't get as much time off work as I would have liked. As I'm recording this, Hurricane Harvey has blown through, and though the damage remains... And Hurricane Irma is striking Florida. If you were affected or know someone who was affected by these storms, my thoughts are with you in this time. So, a little bit of summer reading leftovers. Today, I'll review IDW's Batman The Silver Age Newspaper Comics, Volume 3, which covered the years 1969 to 1972, and specifically look at two stories in the book, one with a Batgirl appearance and one with a Barbara Gordon appearance. This was the last book of the series, which reprinted Batman's 60s and early 70s newspaper comic strips, and I reviewed the prior volumes in previous summers on this podcast. The hardcover book has a massive 256 pages and a cover price of $49.99, but online retailers have it for significantly less. Peter Pakalski did the outstanding front and back wraparound artwork for this dust jacket, as he did with the previous two volumes. Volume 3 was released last November. I have conflicting dates as to what the actual release date in November was, but I know November sounds right. I remember getting this book at my local comic shop right before call when I was in a local play, and I remember just wanting to dive right into this book. Batgirl appears in the sixth story sequence of the book, or continuity as it's called, and the book nicely has provided a title for each of these story sequences. The first story I'll look at was entitled Too Many Riddles, Too Many Villains with the letter 2 spelled T-W-O, as in the numeral. Too many riddles, too many villains ran in newspapers that carried the strip from April 15th to October 5th, 1971. The credited writer was E. Nelson Bridwell, and the credited artist was Al Plastino. Nick Carty may have had a hand in assisting. I'll try to keep my story synopsis significantly shorter this time, as opposed to when I reviewed Volume 2. Commissioner Gordon calls Bruce Wayne via the hotline, with a riddle signaling the return of the Riddler who poses the classic riddle from Alice in Wonderland. Why is a raven like a writing desk? Alfred recalls that Lewis Carroll did give the answer in the preface of a later volume of the book. The answer, because it can produce very few notes, though they are very flat, and it is never put with the wrong end in front. This clue leads Batman to the Second Street Library, which has a rare Hebrew book. Batman finds Penguin, Riddler, and the Mad Hatter there. After a confrontation, the villains get away, but Batman manages to recover the book. Commissioner Gordon conveys another riddle, which leads Batman to Gotham Garden and the target of a million-dollar gate at the box office. This time, Batman runs across Tweedledum and Tweedledee, the Scarecrow and the Riddler. In chasing the villains, the Riddler puts Batman in a trap, but he manages to escape. Batman ascertains that the actual leader of these capers is really Two-Face and not the Riddler, based on subtle clues. The next target are twin emeralds to be given to the wife of a friend of Bruce Wayne's. Bruce arrives at the birthday party and finds the yard has been set up for croquet, which alarms him. Once the emeralds are displayed, Catwoman appears, followed by the Joker and the Penguin. While Penguin fends off the guards with tear gas shooting from his umbrella, Bruce is changed into Batman and manages to punch out the Joker and kick the umbrella from Penguin's hands. Batgirl arrives after Catwoman gives Batman a lash of her cat-o'-nine-tails. 
with Penguin being the only villain non-secured, he overturns a box of croquet balls at Batman and Batgirl. Batgirl slips and falls backwards and hits her head against a brick wall, and Penguin knocks out Batman with a blow to the head from a croquet mallet. Our heroes later regain consciousness and awaken with their wrists manacled to a brick wall and find that Catwoman and Riddler bricklaying a wall all around them. Batgirl and Batman manages to get loose from the manacles, and they find a cat has been placed inside with them. Dick Grayson arrives in Gotham from college and hears on a radio report of Batgirl and Batman's capture. The heroes figure Catwoman left the cat deliberately with a clue to a means for an escape. They find a drain, remove the covering, and they tie a glove to a cord and attach it to the cat and send it down the drain. Robin somehow miraculously finds the cat and then the bricked wall and eventually our heroes are rescued. The next riddle points the target at a drug shipment being sent to Damon Silver. Batman captures Silver and takes his place at the drop. The site of the drug drop is a beach and there... The exchange is interrupted by Riddler, Poison Ivy, and Killer Ma. All the heroes reveal themselves and manage to overpower the villains that are present. As he's being carted to jail, the Riddler gives a riddle clue to Two-Face's hideout. Our heroes figure out the riddle and manage to capture all the villains, save for Catwoman. Robin wonders if Batman had he been faster, could she have been apprehended? Or did Batman let her go? Which Batgirl concurs was a possibility in exchange for a means for previously saving them, including Batman. In reading this book, one obvious thing you'd notice is that the story sequence seems to interrupt and hijack a story already in progress, which was Batman's first encounter with Man-Bat, with a similar story that appeared in Detective Comics around this time. Now, it can be common for a subplot to just happen in a serialized adventure comic strip during a story arc, but not so much that it would just overtake the one like it did here. In Joe DeSere's well-researched forward text, we learn that this is Two-Face's first modern appearance, which occurred here in the comic strip, as this predated his modern comic book appearance in Batman number 234, just by a few months. And not to be confused with a world's finest number 173 appearance a couple years earlier, where Batman masqueraded as the villain Two-Face. One thing I didn't like was how Batgirl was so easily captured here, slipping on a croquet ball and hitting her head against a brick wall that seemingly appeared out of nowhere. I would think that even the least agile kid in my gym class back in the day could have avoided the croquet balls rolled on level ground. Now, granted, this is a comic strip and the story has to move along. I think I had more of a problem on the how than the why. Another problem I had was that Batman in the story couldn't seem to solve any of the riddles on his own. And for each one posed to him, he had to quickly ask Alfred, who just had all these Lewis Carroll information right off the top of his head. Now, that said, I do have to credit writer Bridwell with some pretty detailed research while crafting the story. The artwork was pretty good, too, for the most part, particularly with the villain's appearances. Riddler was his usual question mark self with his costume, and much more in character in this appearance as opposed to one in a previous volume. Catwoman looked great as well. She was wearing her Golden Age costume. Let's move on to our next story sequence, which is entitled Dick Grayson Kidnapped. This sequence ran in the comic strip from January 29th to March 7th, 1972. Writer and artist unknown. Three thugs go through Dick Grayson's apartment window, manage to get the drop on him, and punch him unconscious. He awakens in the kidnapper's hideout outside Gotham, bound, gagged, and overhearing he is being ransomed to Bruce Wayne for $1 million. One of the kidnappers goes to use a nearby payphone to set up the drop. En route, he picks up a stranded motorist who happens to turn out to be Barbara, who is 
explicitly called Babs Gordon in this story. Before Babs is dropped off at the nearest gas station, the member of the gang uses the nearby payphone to call Bruce with the drop details. Babs overhears this and quickly gets into the trunk of the car to hide. Once the coast is clear, she uses the payphone to call Bruce and tells him where to meet her as Batman. Batman arrives and Babs gets in the Batmobile to show him where the kidnapper's hideout is. But no sooner does Batman get there, he gets out of the Batmobile and he's knocked unconscious by the blow from behind by one of the kidnappers and Babs is quickly seized. They are put in the kidnapper's car, but Batman revives and they manage to escape, only for Batman to be seemingly shot. And now with Dick Grayson in tow, the kidnappers depart with a lot of them again. A squad car sees the vehicle, and once pulled over, Batman, who states he was merely knocked out as the bullet hit his utility belt, blinds everyone with a magnesium flash, and then he manages to capture the kidnappers. Commissioner Gordon arrives, and Batman states that Babs was a huge help. Okay, I don't have a lot of positives here. According to the opening text piece, there were some legal issues with the syndicate and the publishers, which subsequently led the syndicate to put a new writer and artist on the strip at the time. The artwork wasn't the worst I've seen, but I think it was a few notches down from the previous quality that the strip had had. Babs' appearance here is the Princess Leia look. Her hair put in buns on both sides of her head, and she's wearing those glasses with the square lenses. I think the writing went down here as well. I didn't like seeing Dick being overpowered so easily as it was depicted here. I thought he'd get at least one punch in. It should be noted that Commissioner Gordon does know Barbara is Batgirl, as shown in a panel in a previous story. We don't see how or when he found out, only that we're left to surmise that he found out recently, which would lead me to think that the comic book version of events is what's being alluded to here. When you read and follow a quality adventure comic strip, you can get the feel for the pacing of the storytelling, how the suspense is built up, and you just didn't find it in this particular story arc. The three kidnappers were about as common as you could find. Now, for the overall book itself, we had a weird hodgepodge of stories. Now, some of these stories were written by Whitney Ellsworth. One sequence had Batman and Robin's identities discovered yet again, which seemed to be a very recurring story plot device throughout the course of the strip's run, and this for me was a bit of overkill. There were many instances of Batman questioning Robin's accurate detective work, which was a bit too much in the story, and that was quite unsettling, and that's then the one where their identities were discovered. There was a really good Green Arrow team-up that I did enjoy. A part of the story was previously reprinted in The Amazing World of DC Comics number 4 in the mid-1970s. That's where I first saw any of these Batman comic strips from this original particular time period. I liked the Man-Bat appearance, which seemed pretty faithful, to, for the most part, to the sequence of events in Detective Comics. <laughs> I can't go without mentioning there was this oddity of a character called Galexo, a telepathic hero, who essentially took over the strip, and we do see the character's first appearance at the end of this volume. Now, I have recommended the previous volumes, but I do have some qualms about this volume in particular, which I don't think were as good as the previous two. Even if you are curious about Galexo, or if you are a Barbara Gordon Batgirl or Killer Moth completist, I have to admit there may not be enough here to justify the price, even if you can find it significantly less than cover cost. I know this isn't for everyone, but I'm giving Batman the Silver Age Newspaper Comics Volume 3... Six and a half. I'll go seven out of ten bats with the caveat that you get it less than cover. Perhaps your local library has a copy, so you can peruse it before you decide whether or not you have to own it. Even at a discount, this is a very expensive book. But it 
had a fair amount of Batman history for me that had been buried, buried, buried for a much too long time. I don't think I had any comments on the last segment. I hope you caught Stella's podcast when she guested on the Supergirl radio podcast. I heard it. I thought she did an excellent job. Also, be sure to check her out on the Required Reading podcast. I'd like to give a shout out to the Sutherlands, as usual. Be sure to check out Warlord World, Striker Talk, and the Xenozoic Xenophile podcast. Listeners, you can find me on Twitter now at BTU on Bat Books. I'll tweet about my weekend nightstand reads, some old Batman comics that I have. I'll put out a Saturday morning salute where I'll tweet a pick or a TV listing from a Saturday morning of your, among other things. Hope you like it. Hope you give it a try. If you're not already following, please give it a follow if you do like it. The handle is spelled B-T-O and Bat Books. B-T-O-A-N-D-B-A-T-B-O-O-K-S. B-T-O as in Batgirl to Oracle. No, not Bachman Turner Overdrive. Bat Books for Beginners is another podcast that I can be found on, though. That is where I co-host it with Jerry Green. That is where we examine and review trade paperbacks and collect the material of Batman or related characters. Please feel free to leave any comments for myself on this segment or for the podcast on the TBU website, and please consider leaving us a good review over on iTunes. If you'd like to lend your support to the Batman universe, the website has news, articles, editorials, and a fine host of podcasts. You can make a donation on Patreon or a one-time donation by PayPal by following the links on the Batman Universe website homepage. Thank you for your support. If any of you wish to contact me directly, I can be reached by email at bruce.wayne at gothamcity.us. Again, bruce.wayne at gothamcity.us. And again, thank you for your support. What title or character will Chris review in his next segment? What backhanded baddies will they face next? Don't fail to listen to the next podcast where the answers to these beneficial, befog, bewildering, bewitching, bemusings will be answered next time. Same Batstella feed, same Batstella site. And finally, we have uh, literature recommendations, which Tom actually really enjoys. I, I remember do. one day you you let slip that like that's one of your favorite things here. So since you're the guest, please, uh, however many you have, what sorts of literature recommendations do you have for the listeners? I have. I'm, I'm flipping through what I've read recently because <laughs> I've read a lot of He's stuff doing that we're pausing thing again that, that we covered. Um, sure. I have two. Okay. Uh, one's a graphic novel. Well, it's not a graphic novel. One's a trade paperback, and the other one is a book. Uh, the book, which I'm in the middle of rereading for like the third or fourth time, is the essays of E.B. White. Um, E.B. White is Ooh. best known as the author of three very famous children's books, among them Charlotte's Web. Uh, he was an essayist for decades for publications like Atlantic and Harper's and the New Yorker. And this is a collection of some of his best essays. Um, they reflect a time in America, like uh, from about his, most of his career from about like the 1930s into the seventies. He is, if you know, uh, grammar and usage, he is the, he <laughs> is no, he is the white in strunk and white, the elements of style. Uh, so white just, he has this very simple writing style that, that relies on word economy, but at the same time is so like nuanced and subtle. And he's got some, uh, some of my favorite all time essays there in there, uh, once more to the lake, which is about him taking his kid up to the lake where he used to go with his, with his father. It's a 
wonderful father and son essay uh, that has that has a deeper point rather than just sentimentality, which is what I like. Here is New York, which is oh, his lengthy essay about New York City, uh, about the late 40s, 1950s, I think it was written. And it's this wonderfully descriptive look at New York City in that time. Afternoon of American Boy, which is about – it has a little bit of a jab at McCarthy – this is written in the fifties. Uh, Farewell, my lovely, which is about him, his fi- Model T finally giving out, and it's it is very much a New England slash New Yorker sensibility of kind of observational humor, and it's, it, it can be it, the kind of dry humor. But I've always I've always admired him as a writer. Uh, so the essays of E. B. White, um, or at least some of his essays, if you can if you can find them, I, I would always recommend them. The trade paperback is. It's a Batman book. Uh, it is Prey, which collects two storylines from the Legends of the Dark Knight series. Uh, the first one is called Prey. I don't remember what the second one is called off the top of my head because I bought it for the first one. The second one is just a, a – oh, it's called Terror, and it was the sequel. Sorry, I'm looking for the Doug Mensch wrote it and the villain is Hugo Strange who is really one of my all-time favorite Batman villains and uh, Hugo Strange it is his essentially his post-crisis introduction then Terror is the sequel to Prey which came out a number of years later and they were both so DC collected them in uh, Lunch of the Dark Knight my copy is uh, on Comixology it's a digital trade so I don't I'm sure that you can find this still in print as well but I would I would highly recommend it it's it's some great kind of horror Batman stuff from the early 90s the early 90s the Prey was the early 90s I think Terror was the late 90s okay you know my favorite Batman villain is the Joker how dare you I, just I think it might just, be Poison Ivy. Maybe Poison Ivy? It might be. I just figured you'd just want to say Joker the way you say Joker. So, Joker. Yeah. That's Joker. why I figured. But No, it's not. Hugo was one of the first ones I ever remember reading. Because oh. my one of the first Batman comics I ever read was um, The Brave and the Bold number. I think it's like 181 or 182. It's he teams up with Earth 2 Robin and he goes to Earth 2 and he faces Earth 2's Hugo Strange. And then when I got the greatest Batman stories ever told trade, my favorite all-time Batman story is the Steve Englehart, Marshall Rogers stuff, and that's Hugo Strange. So Hugo Strange and I go way back in terms of like me liking his stories. Gotcha. I also love that Batman the Animated Series episode where like oh, he goes yeah. to the spa, and it's just, yeah, yeah, I just I just love that episode too. So and and Dick dresses up like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I just it, yeah, on the yeah, 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 so yeah. it's uh, Hugo Strange is a great Batman villain and uh, this is it's a really, really good story Well, there you go uh, I have to apologize to you listeners as well as to Tom because I have a bajillion to recommend and the reason is because I just went on a reading frenzy because I had a long San Diego flight and then I had terrible flights to go out to Iowa for my yearly uh, bonding trip with my dad who drove and also there's not a lot to do in the place before the races at Iowa. So in the morning I bike and he walks, and uh, then there's a lot of downtime. So I basically was reading like a tray today. So here we go. Uh, finishing up my Catwoman trilogy, I didn't get any after Volume 3, which was under pressure uh, because I, I knew that 
uh, the Brubaker stuff was good, and then it went down from there, at least I heard. Uh, so this, Ed Brubaker continues his noir-style look at Selena Kyle and the growing criminal element in Gotham City, along with new artist Paul Gulacci. An outbreak of gang war... It's the same artist of- who drew Prey. Oh, that's funny. An outbreak of gang war in the streets of Gotham City leads to a kidnapping that affects one of Selena's friends. But when she tries to trace the kidnapper, she ends up fighting the Penguin and a ruthless, cybernetically enhanced mafia enforcer known as Zeiss. So, good. I didn't like the art as much as I did in Volumes 1 and 2, but just a solid. I loved getting to know Selena Kyle uh, in her own book like this. I thought that this was great. I also read... A probably not well-known comic series. Uh, Tom, you're going to explain this for me. Nothing Better, Volumes 1 through 3 by Tyler Page. I read it on the recommendation of uh, Mr. Panarese there because I think we're going to do something special with it. Tom, how would you describe Nothing Better to listeners? It is a... No, 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 no. It's like, it's, it's... I put you on the yeah, spot. Yeah, you did put me on the spot. It's... Uh, it... It's it's almost like you're watching a, a, a good television show about a couple a girl a couple of girls and, and and friends trying to make their way through college. Sure, is it like Felicity? Uh, I, I never watched Felicity. I guess so. Oh, okay. It has there's little elements of uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the short-lived show Undeclared. Sounds yeah, funny. there's it's uh, it's not because it's, it's not like it's not Animal House. Or any, you know, it's, no, there's, it's not like frat bro yeah. type of crazy hijinks stuff, yeah. but it's it's very much a, a like a college, almost coming of age, yeah. uh, questioning yourself, trying to find yourself, sure. search for identity, college type of thing. Yeah. Meanwhile, you know, these two roommates don't necessarily get along in the beginning. Yeah. Like mistakes are made, and then you see them grow a little bit closer together. Though in the third one, I was a little confused because the one girl wanted to and now i've forgotten their names but the one girl wanted to be roommates potentially and the other one's like no i'm not rooming with her so that was cats sad. the brunette the crazy yes. one Kat said and she then, didn't want to room with her next year i don't yep. oh i'm blanking on the real name see is fish sad? fish she calls her yeah. fish jane jane, jane fisher, fisher yeah uh, so, anyways, uh, you can probably look out for that on Pop Culture Affidavit sometime. I'm, I'm sure we'll we're get to it. shooting for a November release. Okay, sounds good. There, you, you heard it here first, so now you've stuck it to him. So, if that doesn't happen, you can yell. At him. <laughs> Tyler, and and the the comic itself is available online. Like yes. it's an online. It's mostly an online comic. He's got a few print editions out that he's either self funded or kickstarted. But uh, yeah. but there are uh, PDFs available online, and, and it's been mostly a webcomic, so you can go back and read it if you want to. Uh, yeah, support support the writer slash artist, and it's yeah, it's ongoing. So even though we'll talk about one through three, it's still continuing on, which is good because I have questions mainly about Ryan. Uh, I also read Gotham City Sirens book one, which again I stopped there because I heard that tapered off and got bad after this and this was mainly by paul denny the other people and guillaume march you, you know that he loves the feet so catwoman poison ivy harley quinn you'd all know these uh they're beautiful they're deadly and for the first time in their lives all three are trying to fly on the straight and narrow tired of playing by other people's rules regardless of which side of the law they're on these tough ladies have a new agenda that's all their own and they'll use any means necessary to pursue it uh so i enjoy this i like those three getting together i think it's it's an interesting relationship i know that now 
Ivy and Harley have a romantic relationship. So that's interesting to think about, you know, going back here, you know, at this time and, and see, like, do you see anything there or were they just really friends? Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I really enjoyed the Matt Fraction Hawkeye run. Yeah, that's good. And sometimes if – yes, it's amazing. Sometimes if I get attached to a writer, I will drop off if they drop off. So this often happens with Jason Aaron. I'll follow Jason Aaron to different things even if I am i don't normally read those things. But then if it's going to be a new person, I'll probably drop it off. Uh, so I ended up not picking up the following, which were uh, written by Jeff Lemire. But then there was a Hawkeye sale, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to try it. So I read Hawkeye Volume 5 and Hawkeye Volume 6, which were both uh, written by Jeff Lemire and uh, penciled or or drawn by Ramon Perez. Uh And uh, Kate Bishop is very much in play in both of these issues. Hawkeye Volume 6 has a nice little future effect of basically what if um, they let this thing happen and they have a terrible relationship in the future, but they come back and fix it and then in the end the present they fix it so then the future doesn't happen so i do recommend those two and then as a third which was also on sale i ended up getting hawkeye kate bishop anchor points which now this series is written by kelly thompson and leonardo romero and i i forgot how much i really enjoyed reading kate bishop until i was reading all of this stuff so now i actually went to comiXology and clicked the subscribe to series button (laughs) uh so yeah she she's great because she's over on the west coast and she's got her own detective agency which is it says hawk and then it's got an eyeball and then and it's just fun the the humor is fun she's got this cop there that basically gets annoyed at her and so you know it's just it's it's hard to describe but there's just a lot of good heart in there and she's one of those street level villain uh heroes so it's it's always interesting to follow those around that don't have power so i do recommend that then I read March, books one through three, written by John Lewis, Andrew Iden, and Nate Powell. Uh, and so this is Congressman John Lewis, and he was one of the key figures of the Civil Rights Movement. And uh, you basically see him from a young man, uh, well, like a child young mm-hmm. man, up to adulthood and, and seen also with his involvement with civil rights as well as the progression of civil rights, uh, the politics, the people involved, all that stuff. And uh, this is something that uh, Tom and I are going to be covering this – wait, you already re- – It was October, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're we're going to be recording this month, but it's going to be released in October, so check that out. And then just two more, I promise. Big Little Lies by Leanne Moriarty. Sometimes it's the little lies that turn out to be the most lethal. A murder, a tragic accident, or just parents behaving badly. <laughs> oh, man. So it's following three women, and Madeline, Celeste, and Jane. And they each have their hang-ups or issues. It's... There is a murder, but you have no idea who has gotten killed until the very end. And then you also don't figure out who has killed that person until the very end. But it's like family, parent dynamics, school dynamics with the parents, like clicky stuff, things that really does happen. It was really engaging and interesting. And then I went over to HBO and watched the, I think it was seven episode miniseries on it which was good i mean has amazing stars you've got laura dern reese witherspoon 
Nicole Kidman. I mean, amazing people that are portraying uh, some of the adults and the, the cattiness and stuff. And then finally, I did put this on the uh, required reading little blog post that we have. But I read the third, and right now it's the the newest and the last one out so far, uh, Serafina and the Splintered Heart by Robert Beatty. And this really starts off intriguingly because Serafina is just in this dark space. You don't know what's happened. She comes back to the Biltmore estate, and people are acting really weird. And uh, it's just really great. It's a good connection to the second one, and it finishes up the storyline of the second one as well. And so, again, I recommend this if you're looking for fantasy with some historical elements and you like characters that have a, a deep devotion to friendship and loyalty and, and love to family and everything. So, oh, man. So sorry. That that was, I was like reading lots of stuff. <laughs> so we'll see. For people not in the know, Tom and I have a competition going to see who can read the most books in 2017. And so. Um, he- You're up by three at the moment. I just checked. I knew it. You're up 85 to 82. I knew it. See, that's the thing. He 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 stresses me out, listeners, because he's constantly checking I, it. I'm just reading. I just I'm reading and, and I'm behind because and I just finished the Power Broker last week. So that okay. was that was. I'm sure that counts like 1,200 pages. Sure. Yeah, I know. So. But seriously, he checks it, and I'm just you know logging them in. Now, when we get to like late December, I might be checking and then seeing if I can scrounge some books together to try to beat I, him. I checked but, it for the yeah. six. I knew you were going to bring it up. So, but yes, yeah, uh, yeah, yes. Well, Tom, it's been yes. delightful. Could you please, even though you've been on here, uh, remind people where they can find you? Sure. Uh, go to popcultureaffidavit.com. That's my blog and headquarter for two of my three podcasts, one of which is called In Country, which is on a soon-to-be-finished hiatus. Uh, it, that's I'm going to finally get back to, to wrapping that up. It is my issue-by-issue coverage of the Marvel Comics series The Nam, which involves the Vietnam War. Uh, and there are 79 episodes of that, so you'll be able to, to to make your way through that before you have to hit the where I am right now. Uh, the other is Pop Culture Affidavit itself, which is everything random in the world of popular culture. And uh, both on the blog and on the podcast from uh, I will cover something, just whatever I would like to, comics, movies, TV shows, and music – and I'm also wrapping up a mini series on pop culture affidavit called Origin Story. I'm taking a look at mm. every comic book that I read in 1986 and 1987. And by the time this is out, there will be one episode out of the 33 that are left. Uh, so okay. I just, th- episode 32 came out the morning that we recorded this, and 33 will be out in November. And then, of course, you can head over to Required Reading with Tom and Stella.com, where my uh, lovely host and I are. Uh, taking a look at books that we have chosen for one another and deciding whether or not we like them. We are analyzing them, deciding whether or not they're worth teaching. And as we mentioned, we have an episode that just came out on Ella Minopi. In October, we will be doing March. And then in November, we don't know yet because it's a surprise until the end of the episode. So, but we have yeah, but we've covered of mice and men. We've covered the glass Majory, Rebecca, Eleanor and Park. We did a biography special. So there's uh, ten episodes available now. Eleven, if you count counting Elemental P. And uh, and so you can find that at required reading at with Tom and Stella dot com. My pick gets to fall on my birthday month. Mm, cool. 
You know what that means? I have no idea. <laughs> it means I get to choose a good one. All right. Okay. Well, thank you again for being on. It's great fun to chat with you. Yeah, it always is. And excuse me, I'm not convinced. This is my problem. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's it's it is it's like eleven. Also, it's yeah, and and I'm and we're both pretty beat. Sure. Fry, but no, yes. I was. Thank you for having me on. This was this was fun. Absolutely, absolutely. Remember that you can send any questions or comments to backworld.oracle at gmail.com. Even if you want to complain about, um, well, if you want to actually support the curmudgeon that everybody loves, if you want to get that little slogan trending, please let me know or put it on Twitter. Uh, you can also find the show on Google Play and Stitcher. Like the show on Facebook or follow it on Twitter at Backworld Oracle. And follow the Batman Universe on Facebook and Twitter as well. And support the Batman Universe by subscribing to Patreon. Once again, thanks to My High Comics for sponsoring Backworld Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Until next time, fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you? Well, little guy that's been mentioned on the podcast. So I just mentioned. Yes. Just mentioned. (laughs) Devoted. This is a podcast devoted to Remington. Darling, you can count on me Till the sun dries up the sea Oh, yeah.